What is good, everybody, man? Uh, let me know if y'all can all hear me, and we are going to get this thing rolling. I know um, it's a night early. Usually our FCS weekly previews are on Wednesday nights, but I have a, another podcast I got to hop on tomorrow night, so I moved this one to Tuesday. I didn't, and then Thursday we got the roundtable. Friday I'll be traveling, and I got Kobe's FBS show so this week was really packed and it was a robbery week and I wanted to make sure I had as much time as possible to, on some night tonight to talk about all the insane games. Also, just go into the craziness that is the FCS playoff and award races and everything like that. So tonight we're going to talk about Walter Payton award race, Jerry Rice award race, Buck Buchanan. I'm also going to give y'all my ballot Right now for the FCS Coach of the Year, which is the Eddie Robinson Award. I'm going to let you all know what I'm thinking on that. Break down a bunch of games. We'll have some of the top F FCS games. We're going to have our HBCU preview, and we're also going to have one, our FCS Game of the Week, and then two, our HBCU Game of the Week. And we're going to talk about all that tonight, man. Listen, call-in number is 701-779-9585. Which y'all can expect this week, too. Me and Coach Fred just hopped off the stream. That's why I was a little bit late. We had Jason Brown, former Indy Community College head coach from Last Chance U. Uh, we chopped it up with him for over an hour, man, about the transfer portal, his time at Indy, the behind the scenes of the show, the future of recruiting, everything and, and, and everything in between. So make sure to check that out tomorrow morning on a special episode of the Coach's Corner with Jason Brown, head, former head coach of Indy Community College on Last Chance U. And before we get into the show, I know Sean wanted to talk about this, about St. Thomas, um, who right now is dominating the Pioneer League. If they, if the transfer, not the transfer, but the the move-up rules for the incident of play were a bit different. They'd probably win the conference this year and be and, and have the auto bid for the Pioneer League into the playoffs, but they can't do that due to the transitioning rules for the NCAA. But they did put in a request to move from D3 to D1. The reason that happened, just a little bit of backstory for everyone who may be just getting into the show, is that St. Thomas was actually – voted out of their conference at the D3 level. So what happened is they were beating everybody so bad at their at the D3 level in their conference that the other teams in the conference held a vote to force them to move up or move out of the conference. So St. So St. Thomas was in the conference competing well, bringing like doing everything they were supposed to and the other teams in the conference were tired of getting beat. So they voted St. Thomas out of the conference. And so St. Thomas got a special waiver to jump from D3 to D1. Now, this has also happened, I believe, two other times. Maybe, you know, maybe not at that level, but this this has been done. This wasn't the first time ever. If I'm not mistaken, Dayton did it a while back. And then there was another school that I'm blanking on that did. So I think this was the third time it happened, but it was really the first time that or one of the first times that a school got voted out of a conference for being too good. And so the D2 conference they were moving to, they were a bit iffy on the fit and things like that. And so they just went ahead and applied to make the jump to FCS because they already had a bunch of sports competing in the Summit League, which is... It, it's So the Summit League is pretty much like 
so the Missouri Valley has the MVFC, which is the Missouri Valley Football Conference, but the the MVFC doesn't have like basketball and other sports. Like the Summit League is what um, North Dakota State and everyone competes in in terms of other sports outside of football. And so St. Tom, and so since St. Thomas competed in the all you know in that league and all other sports, they, that's why they applied for the waiver, Sean. So that's kind of the backstory on that. It was a weird situation because if I'm not mistaken. It's one of the only times that a conference has voted to remove a member for being too good. I and, and that's what I'm saying. A could I couldn't imagine being so good in conference that the entire conference thought that they would be better without us because we were beating them to death so bad every year. Um, it's a weird situation. And I had a and, and in terms of investment in football, I can see them being a pioneer league team that eventually moves conferences in a, in a handful of years. They have to get funding and growth at the FCS level recruiting, but they've come into the pot. They've come into the pioneer league and really cleaned house. I mean, Davidson's going to get the auto bid for that league most likely. And they beat Davidson handily on the road at Davidson. So that's just show you what St. Thomas is doing at a very high level already year one from, from D3. So St. Thomas is such a weird case just due to how, how that program is. And there's a lot of people over at North Dakota State and in the MVFC that think five, ten years down the line, St. Thomas could be the next real dynasty at the FCS level if they can get finances and and things together behind the scenes. But Man, uh, Sean, appreciate you bringing that up. And St. Thomas is a team that I'm extremely interested to see how they evolve at the FCS level. Yeah, they're already a top-tier team in the Pioneer League. Like, if they can move to a scholarship conference, St. Thomas could be scary, scary good. But let's get into this uh, preview. Walter Payton Award watch list going into the final week of the season. Voting's going to happen next week. These three guys, I think, all would be really high on my ballot. Also, Matthew Solka would probably be in this conversation, but Lindsey Scott, Tim DeMorit are going to be the top two. Lindsey Scott had a bye week last week. Everything's pretty much the same. He's he's third in the country in completion percentage at almost 74%, 3,400 passing yards, 45 passing touchdowns, six rushing, only four turnovers all season long, still on pace to set the record for passer efficiency, top three in passing yards, passing touchdowns, completion percentage, and Lindsey Scott has done everything and more for incarnate word um this season in his in, in his first year there with a first year head coach i mean you, you it, it's it's absolutely ridiculous how good scott has become an incarnate word and i did not see this coming after his transfer tim demore at fordham i think he's probably the odds on favorite to win it now 65% completion percentage he's all he's eclipsed the 4000 yard mark over already over 4100 passing yards 47 passing touchdowns for Tim DeMoret, five rushing touchdowns as well. He's second in passer efficiency, first in yards, first in touchdowns, and he is having a ridiculous year. Fordham's going to finish the season with two losses, one to an FBS school and a one-point loss to Holy Cross on the road in overtime. Tim DeMoret is probably going to be your Walter Payton Award winner if it's not Lindsey Scott. Michael Ayers is a name I wanted to throw in here. I think Michael Ayers should get some consideration in terms of top five, top three votes. First year at Sanford, coming from the JUCO level, 
he's leading the country in completion percentage and actually would reset the NCAA FCS record if the season ended today. He's completing over 76% of his passes, 2,800 passing yards, 31 touchdowns, only three picks, two rushing, top 10 in passing yards, top three in passing touchdowns. And Michael Ayers has been one of the biggest surprises. Sanford picked picked finish sixth in the in the conference, looking at a potential top five seed. And I don't I don't know if he's been to invited to any post game All Star games yet. Jay, I know Tim Demoret is going to the Hula Bowl, I believe. But Lindsey Scott, I don't know if he's received an invite, but I know Tim DeMoret is already committed to go play in the Hula Bowl, um, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know if he can back out of that or not, if he gets a bigger invite somewhere. But these are the top three. Matthew Solka, Parker McKinney, Shador Sanders, um, Jaden Sheridan would probably be somewhere rounding out my top five, top six votes. But I think these three guys would probably be the top three names on my ballot right now for the Walter Payton Award um, if we had to vote today. Now, huge changes for the Buck Buchanan Award. If you've been watching the show, you know John Pius, Patrick O'Connell, Maxwell Anderson have really graced this list for a majority of the seasons since I started this. We have three new names. Zeke Vandenberg was an honorable mention earlier this season, but David Walker, Zeke Vandenberg, and Joe Andreessen have emerged as legit candidates for the Buck Buchanan this year. David Walker, Central Arkansas defensive end, he transferred up from the D2 level. He's a sophomore right now for the Bears in his first season at the FCS level. 57 total tackles, 19 tackles for loss, 11 sacks, a forced fumble, leads the country in both sacks and tackles for loss. He has four games this season with two or more tackles for loss for the Bears, and he has been a breakout player. And I think he deserves a real, he deserves some real consideration for the Buck Buchanan after, after what he's done already for, for a really young central Arkansas team. Now Zeke Vandenberg, 83 total tackles, 17 tackles for loss, 10 and a half sacks, a forced fumble, four pass breakups, top three of tackles for loss, tied for second in sacks, four games for Vandenberg with three or more tackles for loss. He plays so many different roles for the Redbirds defense, and I think he's probably one of the more complete prospects at the linebacker spot in the upcoming whenever he whenever he decides to declare. But I think he has real NFL potential right now. Man, Zeke Vandenberg is an absolute animal off the edge. And then Joe Andreessen, if you want a linebacker that can play sideline to sideline and make play after play, that is Joe Andreessen for Bryant. 111 tackles, 18 and a half for loss, four sacks, two picks, four pass breakups. He's top three in tackles, top two in tackles for loss. He has 10 or more tackles in eight games for the Bulldogs this season. I don't know if Joe Andreessen is going to lose some votes just due to the success of the overall team. But if we're talking about someone who reminds me so much of some of what Troy Anderson or some or a linebacker like that can do is Joe Andreessen and all the different roles that he can play. I think he's the best interior linebacker right now in the FCS. He is all over the field and make and can just make plays all over the field for Bryant. And I think these three guys right now would be my top three in terms of voting. And I think all three are going to receive a lot of consideration for the Buck Buchanan Award. And that's it's probably been the most, 
I would say, rotating door names that have popped up for the Buck Buchanan just because each week you never know. John Pius started out real strong, but recently he's really fallen off in terms of his production. Patrick O'Connell gets hurt. It's just hard for DBs to stay in contention. I still think Maxwell Anderson is one of the best defensive backs in the country. It's just when you're at linebacker or defensive end, man, that's it's like playing quarterback on offense. You can pad the stat box and you can make big impacts all game long and week after week. And so David Walker, Zeke Vandenberg, and Joe Andreessen are my three picks right now for my Buck Buchanan Award watch list. And for the Jerry Rice Award, no changes outside of Conor Collimore. Giovanni McCoy still doing his thing for the Vandals. Makai Jackson still doing his thing for St. Francis at the wide receiver spot. Conor Collimore, though, Southern Utah linebacker, is putting together an outrageous season. Over 75 tackles this year, 10 for loss, two and a half sacks, a forced fumble, a fumble recovery. It's going to be tough for a defensive guy to win it over McCoy, but I think Colmore deserved an honorable mention this week right behind McCoy. Rex Connors and Eric O'Neill are two honorable mentions for this Freshman of the Year award. And so just to kind of give you all a heads up on what I'll be dropping starting next week, I'm doing all conference teams for all the FCS conferences, first and second team for every FCS conference in the country. I'm doing an FCS All-American team, three teams, so you'd be first, second, and third team. So that's for the entire country, All-American. And I'm also going to do an All-Freshman team for the entire FCS. So listen, there's going to be a lot of content coming, a lot of a lot of awards coming, articles coming, graphics coming, man. So stay tuned for all that. But if I had to vote today, Giovanni Giovanni McCoy is my vote for the Jerry Rice Award, best freshman in the country, in my opinion, especially after what he's led the Vandals to. This season, year one of Jason Eck. Now, Eddie Robinson Award watch list. I think these these would be my three votes. This would be my top three for coach of the year at the FCS level. GJ Kenny, I think, probably deserves it just about more than anybody. Incarnate Word head coach. This was his first year as a head coach ever. This was the first time he's ever been a head coach. 9-1 9-1 and one overall record, fifth in the country right now for Incarnate Word and has the chance to lead Incarnate Word to their first ever seed in the FCS playoffs. Incarnate Word's never won a playoff game. They've never, they've never made it to any round past the first round. A lot of firsts can happen in year one of G, of G.J. Kinney. And on top of that, he's doing all this with a first-year quarterback in his system where he – has turned he's he's turned Lindsey Scott into an absolute monster in this offense. And so I think GJ Kinney, in my opinion, should win the Eddie Robinson award this year. But man, it, it's really it's very unpredictable to see what other voters are going to put put weight in. Is it are they going to factor in difficulty? Are they going to factor in um I just I, I don't know what other voters are putting in, but when I look at the level of difficulty, first time head coach, new quarterback, stepping in where you you have to replace Cameron Ward and you're the defending chance with a target paint on your back, to be a top five team in the country, to have an FBS win, to have multiple ranked wins on your resume, to potentially have all these firsts in school history, his first year's head coach. I gotta give GJ Kenny my vote now mike london's an interesting one too william and mary head coach this is his fourth year at william and mary eight and one overall record number eight in the country right now and has the chance to lead william and mary to their first conference title since 2015 
and some of their and I think William and Mary has a chance to be a seed. And I think William and Mary has a chance to make a dark horse run. I think Mike London deserves some consideration for the coach of the year award just for the turnaround that he's put together at William and Mary. And this is the first time they've really had success in almost 10 years now. So Mike London would be a vote for me too. And then Chris Hatcher as well for Sanford. If you follow Sanford, you know how long it's been since Sanford has been as good as they are this year. If you're an FCS fan, like you understand it's been a long time for Sanford to put on a performance like they have. And eighth years ahead coach, nine and one record right now, has already clinched the SOCON and it's their first SOCON title since 2013 and could be a seed for the first time, I think possibly ever, if I'm not mistaken, and has a chance to win and make a run in the FCS playoffs for the first time in an extremely long time. So I think Chris Hatcher with a first-year quarterback, too, and Michael Ayers, Chris Hatcher's level, level of difficulty has been outrageous. They have multiple ranked wins on the schedule. Chris Hatcher deserves some consideration because there was there's a debate right now raging in the FCS community. I just want to kind of key y'all in on. There's a lot of talk that Sanford right now potentially deserves to be a seed based on blonde resume over North Dakota state. Like that's how good people really think Sanford is and how improved Sanford is after not even being voted top five in their own conference. The fact that they could be a top four seed going into the playoffs if they win this weekend over Mercer at home. I I think Chris Hatcher has done a hell of a job and I didn't see it coming, man. I talked to him at SoCon Media Day, and I, I don't even know if he saw how good this team really could be. Um, let's see. Uh, Mike London, hands down, he built Howard and reestablished and reinstored uh, William & Mary's football program. I hate that. I know I talked to some Howard people in, in one of the Twitter spaces, and I know it, man, it's got to be tough to see the success. Like, cause, I mean, imagine Mike London right now still at Howard with some of the, with some of the talent that they have. Man, he deserves so much credit for what he's building William and Mary. And I think he's one of the more underrated head coaches at the FCS level, Miak Mike. I, I I think Mike London deserves more respect than he gets on a national level for what he's really recruited, built, and installed at um at, at William and Mary. I just don't understand how Incarnate Word blew up with talent so fast. So it's a combination of their private schools. So they have a little bit of money behind them, uh, G. And also on top of that, they're in Texas recruiting rich state. And you also have to look at, they have a, they have a player friendly system. Their, their head coach to last year just took the offensive coordinator job at Washington state. So you, that just shows you how valuable he was and what he's looked at as, um, it just in terms of the coaching community. And then you go hire G.J. Kinney, who was the offensive coordinator um, over at UCF under Gus Malzahn. And he's a Texas guy, played at Tulsa, was was one of the better quarterbacks in the history of Tulsa. If I'm not mistaken, I think he won CUSA Player of the Year as a quarterback. And Incarnate Word hits on hits on Cameron Ward. So they take a chance. And, and listen, go check out the interview with Jason Brown, tomorrow that I'm going to drop. We talk about Cameron Ward and 
how and he t- goes into why it's so important for coaches to understand what like what talent is even regardless of the system they're playing in and so they took a chance on Cameron Ward in a triple option kind of wing T offense where he he isn't um he isn't throwing the football and they take a chance on Cameron Ward due to his intangibles, his measurables. He comes in, wins the Jerry Rice Award, and then follows up his sophomore year, finishing top five, if I'm not mistaken, in the Walter Payton. Transfers to Washington State, leads Washington State to multiple ranked victories this year in the top 25 ranking earlier this year. And then some of the younger players, a Caleb Culp, a Kalechi Analabechi, um, a Chris Whitaker, a... Darian Chafin, a Taylor Grimes, they they hit on all these underrated prospects, and they turned out to be superstars in this offense and and on on defense. And so, it goes back to if you have a good coaching staff, you could you, your system is player friendly, and you get players that either fit your system or fit your system around the players. And regardless of who Incarnate Words brought in, man, they have hit on recruit after recruit after recruit that no one else in the country really wanted. And I think that speaks to their eye for talent and their ability to put players in situations to succeed. And I think that is really and truly what has led to Incarnate Word being as good as they are, as quickly as they are. And I don't see it stopping, man, because I've I've been kind of following the recruiting trail. They got some kids coming in who are going to be really good, and we don't even know who they're going to get in the transfer portal. And that's another level of recruiting at the FCS level that you have to be good. You have to get transfers that hit. Alabama A&M got a bunch of transfers. They hit on a handful, but a lot of them ended up not fitting what they were doing. And on top of that, you look at Incarnate Word. Went out and got the running back. I'm blanking on his name right now. He's the lead, He's one of the leading rushers in the Southland. You go get a Lindsey Scott, who a lot of people thought was a dual-threat guy that couldn't really throw like that was the narrative like I want to make sure y'all understand that was the narrative for Lindsey Scott is that he's not really a a passing quarterback that dude right now is leading the country in almost every major key statistic so it's it's player development and good coaching man I think that is the key behind the scenes to incarnate words rapid rise to um where they are and um let's see Dark host for the, okay. I like that. Uh, the coach for UNH, I, I think he'll probably be up for it. I think it's gonna be tough for him to win it just after if New Hampshire would have won the CAAA, I think you might have had a chance. But the fact that they lost to Richmond last week, I feel like he's gonna be high in the voting. I just, um, I don't think he, I don't see him winning it. I'll just put it like that. Yeah, Marcus Cooper, there you go. I appreciate the reminder on that one. Yeah, Marcus Cooper, they went and grabbed him. And everyone, because everyone was telling me the reason Lindsey Scott is doing what he's doing is because they're throwing the ball all around the yard. Marcus Cooper right now has run for, I think, 800 yards and eight touchdowns. He's having an outstanding year. So, man, hitting on your recruiting pickups is so key. And the reason the, the reason I don't have Dion in my top three is the same reason I don't have South Dakota State's coach, Sacramento State's coach, Um uh, North Dakota, South Dakota State, Montana State, all those coaches, we knew that they were supposed to be undefeated this year. They were supposed to be some of the best teams in the country. In my opinion, you don't give the Coach of the Year award to a coach who just met expectations. Like you, to me, to be the Coach of the Year, you have to overcome some like tremendous odds 
and be, and exceed expectations. And because if that was the case, man, Nick Saban or Kirby Smart would win the coach of the year every single year. Like it would just be it's the, it's the coach of the year award, not the coach of the best team in the country award. And so I think G.J. Kenny, Mike London, Chris Hatcher, when you compare to what the preseason expectations were, the odds of them having the years that they did and just some of the external factors, that's more impressive to me than just giving it to the number one team in the country. I, I don't think North Dakota State's coach deserves the coach of the year this year. Like, that's just uh, that's not how I look at it. I think G.J. Kenny is much more deserving of the award. Uh, that's just how I feel. Uh, exactly. Like, every single year okay the man's undefeated that's that's great there's also some other coaches that are undefeated like i i don't think that that's that's not the i don't think that's the standard is you got to be undefeated all the like gj kenny and mike london beat fbs schools too like i i don't know what you like uh we're gonna get to the weeds here but no that that's not you cannot tell me that any of those other coaches deserve the coach of the year over any three of these guys, especially Kenny in, in London. But man, let's jump into some of these matchups and we got some notable games, ones, ones that we're not going to be, you know, breaking down all the way, but just kind of um, jumping in here and Carnet were Northwestern state. So let me break down the Southland for you guys. Um, Southeastern Louisiana controls their destiny. Southeastern Louisiana, if they beat Nickel State on Thursday on the road, Southeastern Louisiana clinches the at-large bid or, or clinches the auto bid, and it, it, this game just becomes incarnate work keeping their playoff hopes alive for a seed. But if Southeastern Louisiana loses and incarnate work beats Northwestern State, incarnate work gets that auto bid. Uh, so this is big. Incarnate work is going to need some help to get the auto bid. But Incarnate Word winning here probably locks them up a seed potentially in the playoffs. And I think that's going to be a huge thing for them is to get that first round by, especially after not having recent success in the playoffs due to being a newer program. But the keys to the game are easy, man. Lindsey Scott's going to have to have a big game. We, we've already talked about his stats, but Northwestern State has a solid secondary. They got some real ballers back there with Bartholomew and some other guys. Taylor Grimes, Darian Chafin cannot get off like they have been. Those two guys have been electric at the wide receiver spot. Taylor Grimes over 900 yards receiving this year, 12 touchdowns. Darian Chafin, 10-plus touchdowns this year, over 800 yards receiving. They are one of the scariest duos on the outside in the FCS in terms of wide receivers. And on the defensive side, I've mentioned them earlier. Caleb Colt, Kalechi, and Lebechi are two guys that are play all over the field. And then the front seven, Incarnate Word has done a great job getting to the quarterback. Cameron Preston, Chris Whitaker, Stephen Parker, all of these guys are approaching double-digit sacks, double-digit tackles for loss. It's going to be key to keep that front seven contained if you're Northwestern State, especially when you look at this team. Zachary Clement, has had really high, like real has has had some really high, high prime time performances, but he turns the ball over a lot. He's only completing about 54% of his passes, 12 interceptions. If you turn the football over against Incarnate Word, keep your defense on the field, they get tired. Lindsey Scott in this offense is going to absolutely put a beat down on this team. You have to keep the ball out of Incarnate Word's hands. On the defensive side, P.J. Harrington, Jacob Washington, Race Moser, 
These guys have to have big games. You've just got to play disciplined defense. You saw in the PV game, they lost a game, but el- eliminating the explosive play is the key to beating Incarnate Word. When I look at this matchup, a turnover-prone quarterback, a defense that when they're on the field a long time is prone to give up explosive plays, I think Incarnate Word makes a statement this weekend. Give me Incarnate Word big over Northwestern State, and we'll see what happens on Thursday night with Southeastern Louisiana, can they lock up the conference against against Nichols State on the road? So make sure to tune into that one. St. Francis Merrimack, this game is an NEC championship game. So just some backstory. All these games are going to have backstory because every we're settling some conference championships this weekend. The NEC, SFU, has already locked up the auto bid, but the conference championship is not decided. So Merrimack, still in its transitional period, cannot go to the playoffs. And due to due to that fact, SFU has already clinched the auto bid, but Mary Mack can still win the conference title. I know. Uh, it's aggravating. I don't understand. I will, we'll get into the transition rules later because if y'all want to talk about it, because I got a whole rant on how dumb the transition rules are. But St. Francis, it's, it's, talk, it's all about the explosive offense. They can move the football at will. Cole Dowell, at quarterback, has been great. 16 touchdowns to only three interceptions. They also have multiple running backs, and Quayshon Holmes, Lavelle Armstead, and Cole Dole can get out of the pocket and make plays with his legs. And I've already talked about Makai Jackson. Eli Serrett is another freshman that is one of the top receivers in the country with 11 touchdowns. They have two freshmen that I'm just going to let y'all know are going to be on my all-freshman team. It's going to come down, can the defense hold up? When they play Sacred Heart, SFU jumped on them quick, and it really gave the defense some much-needed momentum. But if Merrimack can turn this into a drag-out game where they're where this is a low-scoring game, this, this one's going to be real tough for SFU. they got to have a fast start. When you look at Merrimack, their quarterback play is up and down. They've, they've had to play three quarterbacks due to injuries. But running the football is going to be key with Trevon Edmonds and Victor Dawson, both these guys over 500 yards rushing this year. When I look at the trajectory, some injuries for Mary Mack right now, I like St. Francis to win a close one. I think this one probably gets into the low 30s, but give but give me St. Francis by three to seven this weekend over Mary Mack, clinching the outright NEC championship. Now, AT and Gardner Webb. The Big South has announced, I mean, the SWAC's the only conference with a true championship game. The Big South is promoting this as a championship game because the winner goes to the playoffs. The loser does not have the resume to get a large bid. The loser goes home. This is a true winner-go-home game. A&T and Gardner-Webb, and I cannot wait for this one. These are two great offenses going up against each other. One led by what I think should be the Big South Offensive player of the year and Bashil Tootin at running back, 1,200 yards for Tootin, 6.6 yards per carry, 12 rushing touchdowns for North Carolina AT. Tootin is having an all American type year at the running back spot. And I do think on a second or third team, all American team, you're going to see him make somebody's list. It's going to come down to also Jalen. Jalen Fowler has played better. I talked about this on the roundtable with Scotty. I had Fowler in my top five. HBCU quarterbacks going into a few weeks ago. The last few weeks, he's played pretty well. Charleston Southern was a little bit shaky. 
but Norfolk State, he played extremely, extremely well. Yeah, I don't know. I've heard that he's still going to try to play KB. I don't know how true that is, but if not, if if Fowler doesn't play, it really evens the playing field because when you look at Gardner Webb, they are a team that can put up some points quickly if you if if you're not playing well. And also, Bailey Fisher has to be efficient. If you've watched AT this year, that secondary with Prunty and some of the new additions that Sam Washington talked about in the offseason, the secondary was the Achilles heel for North Carolina AT. He said we 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 replaced a secondary coach. We replaced all four starters last year from last year, pretty much for North Carolina AT. It is going to be essential that Bailey Fisher keeps the ball out of their hands because they can run the football really well. Nari Gaither, I had him on the show this offseason at Big South Media Day. He can play, man. This kid's averaging over six yards per carry as well. They've really spread the football out in the red zone, though. They got 25 rushing touchdowns, guys. And Bailey Fisher at quarterback has seven. They don't have a running back with over three rushing touchdowns, and they have over 25 rushing touchdowns as a team this year. They keep fresh bodies in over and over in the red zone. Also, Todd French is a key. We mentioned... The quarterback potentially being banged up. Pressure has really thrown off the entire A&T quarterback room. Ty French can be a game changer. 11 and a half tackles for loss, nine sacks, double-digit quarterback hurries. If Ty French can wreak havoc up front, it really is going to throw off what A&T, what A&T needs, and that's to have a little bit of balance. Because if I'm Gardner-Webb, eight in the box, I'm daring you to throw over the top. Especially, especially if your quarterback is banged up coming into this one. And at the linebacker spot for AT, that's going to be that's going to be key. Taekwon King, Jacob Roberts, both of these guys over 60 tackles on the year. Both of these guys potentially all conference selections at linebacker for the Big South. They're going to have to play amazing football this weekend. This is going to be a huge game. I've been I've been really riding for AT. Since the middle of the year, man, I think when when they knocked off Campbell, I, I've had them in my playoff bracket. I got on my bracketology later in the show. I'm going to go a in a close one, but I do expect this to be a real test. And I think a lot of people are underestimating Gardner-Webb just because they're not watching Gardner-Webb. But like I said, Gardner-Webb is a sneaky good team. And if a comes in here and plays B-minus, C-plus football, do not be surprised if the Bulldogs get into the playoffs and AT gets sent home. They lost to Liberty by one, only by four to Coastal Carolina. And yeah, their one bad loss was to Mercer. It's going to be a good game. But like Jay said, I got AT by a single score this weekend, clinching the Big South, getting to the playoffs. Understand Washington now, one of the most storied rivalry games in the country, not just even at the FCS level. Yale versus Harvard. Everyone knows. What this is, this is a big game for Yale. Yale can clinch a share of the Ivy League title with a win, win it outright if um, if, if Princeton and Penn go a, go a different way. But Yale coming off a big win over undefeated Princeton last weekend, extremely balanced. And he said, <laughs> he said, this is this is the game. It is. It is literally called the game <laughs> in, in terms of the Ivy League, but. It's gonna. It's really gonna come down to which offense can establish their, I would say, pace of the game. When you look at what Yale does well, their quarterback is is everything. 
Nolan Grooms leads the team in rushing 682 rushing yards. Trey Patterson and Joshua Pittsburgh both have over 500 yards on the ground. These guys have combined for almost 20 rushing touchdowns together. And when you look at Harvard, they do the same thing. Charlie Dean's solid at quarterback, but Aiden Borg at 1,100 yards, 10 rushing touchdowns. He is the main focus of this Harvard of this Harvard offensive attack. And also, don't forget the guy who sent Yell home with a loss last year. Ken Wimberly is still here. He he had the walk-off touchdown last year against Yale. He's a matchup nightmare on the outside when Dean puts it in the air. And this game is really going to come down to one thing. If Because if Yale can't run the football, I like Harvard running away with this one. James Herring at linebacker has been electric. Thor Griffith, Truman Jones, Nate, Nate Lazevichek, these guys have been dominant in terms of playing in the backfield of the team. And Thor Griff, 11 tackles for loss. Truman Jones, 13. Nate Lazevichek, Le- nine tackles for loss. All three of these guys are probably going to be all conference selections. And due to that, due to the matchups, and football is all about matchups, I like Harvard pulling the upset this weekend over Gale, winning another game over the Bulldogs at, at home. So give, give me Harvard over Gale this weekend in the upset. And I do think they're the least penalized team. I don't know. I, not off the top of my head, I don't I haven't looked at all the stats, but it wouldn't surprise me. They are consistently not penalized. They let them play. But some top FCS games. We're also going to get into our HBCU preview next in our two games of the week. But North Dakota State, North Dakota, in-state rivalry battle. And, I, th- I okay, regardless of how this goes, I still think North Dakota probably gets in but they need it to be somewhat competitive because of how big the bubble is. If they go in there and get beat by 40, there's going to be a lot of conversation about whether they realistically should get a shot at the playoffs. And Mr. Ford, I I just saw you're calling in after I cover this game and I'll jump to you real quick. They're going to need this game to be competitive. And when you look at what North Dakota state does well, it's run the football, but there is a big X factor. Hunter Lipke, a little bit banged up last week. I don't know. I haven't had the word. I haven't heard the word that he's going to play or not yet. That means Tamaric Williams, Kobe Johnson, Dominic Ganella, TK Marshall. Somebody's going to have to step up at the running back spot. And Cam Cam Miller, ten passing touchdowns, two interceptions. He's only thrown 162 passes this year. It could. It could put the game firmly on his shoulders if Lipke doesn't go. And the only good thing about that is you got a North Dakota State secondary that's giving up over 240 per game through the air, giving up 23 touchdowns and only four six picks. So there should be some opportunities for them to push the football down the field. Zach Mathis, Braylon Henderson are two guys that you could look out for. Now they did lose my guy Phoenix Sproles to the transfer portal, and this would be a week that you probably wish um, you probably wish you had him. And on the defensive side, man, we know what North Dakota State does. They have they have limited opponents to less than 300 yards per game. They're efficient in both aspects of the defense. James Cascor at linebacker, Michael Tutsi, Nick Kubitz, they all they all do a lot of things well. And then Spencer Wagey has really returned from injury in a dominant fashion, man. And he's a six-year guy. We've had him on the show. 12 tackles for loss, six sacks. He's really returned to form after a really significant leg injury, man. I love to see it. I still just think, man, North Dakota State finds a way to pull it out, but I don't think they're going to blow 
North Dakota out, man. Tyler Hoosman, solid, solid running back. Isaiah Smith can do some things on the offensive side of the football. It's going to come down to can North Dakota stop Cam Miller if he has to put it in the air. And our guy Dave said he's out. So no Lipke this weekend, but they're still deep enough. Give me North Dakota State by 10 this weekend over North Dakota. Ivy League football equals a 50-year-old 50, 50 single man who was a former Playboy bunny and refused to get over the fact that <laughs> – Jesus. <laughs> Fair enough, man. Fair enough. Let me get to Mr. Four, man. We're going to finish up previewing some of these games. What's good, Mr. Four? You're live. Well, hang on. I'm going to shut this down, Mr. Four. Hang on. It's, hang on. I don't know what that was. Hang on, Mr. Four. We're going to get this fixed. We got a shocker here. Dave is picking North Dakota State. There is one other participant in the conference. All right, let's try this now. What's good, Mr. Ford? You're live now. Uh, hang on, Mr. Four. I don't, I don't have you. Hey, hang on. Can you hear me? Yeah, got you now. You're good now. Okay. Yeah, let me turn mine down. Hold on. Can you hear me? Yeah, got you now. Okay, listen. You know, it's always good to hear you talk about Chris Hatcher. Blue, I knew his dad. His daddy was named Edgar Hatcher. He uh, was head football coach down at Southwest Macon. Uh, uh, Chris is originally from Macon, Georgia. You remember Norm Nixon played with Magic Johnson and Kareem Jabbar? You remember him? Yeah, I've, I've heard the name at least. Okay, Norm Nixon was coached by Chris Hatcher's daddy at Southwest Macon, but he got his fame in basketball. You know, he went to uh, he went from uh, Southwest Macon to Duquesne, and from Duquesne he was drafted by the Lakers. But anyway, the thing that's kind of surprising about Chris, I'm surprised that Chris is not on the FBS level. Now, he's done well. Uh, you know, he was really super at uh, Division II Valdosta State. I think he worked one time at Murray State. They've been very patient with him at um, Sanford. He's, he's worked out well there. But I'm, I'm surprised at that. The other thing I want to say to you, um, what does, uh, in your opinion now, and, and tell me how you see this, Jackson State versus Harvard. How do you see that? You you see Harvard blowing Jackson out? You see Jackson blowing them out? How do you uh, see that? Harvard has not been blown out a lot. I think it'd be competitive because Harvard's defensive line is a problem, and they got some really good defensive backs, including Alex Washington. I think it'd be competitive, but I think Jackson State would win that game. Uh, they pulled away at the uh, end somehow. And, I don't think Harvard's the same thing with Yale? Would they beat Yale? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, 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 let me ask you this, Blue. Why is the media ignoring Hugh Freeze? Hugh Freeze has shown he's one of the best coaches in the country. He went to what? That's uh, Liberty. He didn't. What is Liberty ranked? Are they ranked? No, they lost to UConn this past weekend. That's right. That's, that, you're right. You're right. 
But listen, I, I still think that he's doing a great job up there at Liberty now. He is. Because um, yeah, they lost I'm to. I'm thinking he's doing a great job up, and I think they they supporting him. Now, I don't know if he's gonna leave, but uh, he's done a great job. Now let me let me get to what I really want to talk to you about. Okay, let me say this. I I want to I want to direct this to the Alabama State people, because you know it's a shame that y'all letting this go on over there at Alabama State. Okay, Alabama State ran the football against Florida and M last Saturday, 35 times. They gained 14 yards. It was an average of 0.4. And somebody tell me why is Harry Williams still the offense coordinator? Somebody tell me that. Okay. At the same time, I want to get on Southern uh, to to about these Southern University folk. You got the second best personnel in the SWAT behind Jackson State. All them players you got down there. You six and four. You four and three in the conference. I think that's a shame. I think that's a downright shame. And I'm gonna say this to the, to uh, I want to say this to Coach Doolin and that staff over there. Now, Coach Doolin went 20 and 17 over there at Prairie View. That ain't gonna work in Baton Rouge. I can tell you that right now. That ain't gonna that ain't gonna work in Baton Rouge. And now I'm gonna tell you something. The person that's got to straighten all of this out is Roman Banks, cause Doolin can't do it. Doolin can't do it. But Banks, somebody y'all let him know. He got to go get some defensive coach. Now, listen, let me say this to Eddie Robinson, the coach over there at Alabama State. All you got to do is call Willie Fritz down there at Tulane and ask him to recommend you an offense coordinator. If you don't want to deal with him, call, uh, what's that guy, Mike Gundy at Oklahoma State. He can recommend one of them young boys he got that he trained. If not, how about Jeff Grimes down at Baylor? Bring that system to uh, uh, Alabama State. That's going on at Alabama State offensively. It's obvious. Alabama State needs a play caller, quarterback coach, offense coordinator. Do you know how many people would love to come and work at Alabama State? Do y'all know how many folks with, with that beautiful state? Listen, we had some people from Atlanta, Georgia, went down to Montgomery this weekend to see – Florida and him and Alabama State. You know what everybody came back talking about, Blue? How beautiful that stadium is. They couldn't believe it. I had told them. But, but they, 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 they couldn't get over the fact that they had the restaurant inside of the stadium, how beautiful the stadium was. Now, you're going to tell me with all of that, you can't get a top-notch offense coordinator? Y'all you, not going to tell me that. And I'm going to say this right here again. Southern University, with all them players down there, you ain't going to win nothing until Roman Banks straighten out that coaching staff down there. Okay? Now, my last thing, Blue, I need to know from you, everybody now is, is, is uh, catching up to this Chennis Berry, head coach at Benedict uh, College. I want to know from you, where does he fit in in the swag? Where can he be the head? Now, I personally think he should go to Bethune-Cookman. But I want to put it on you. Blue, where does Chennis Berry go in the SWAC or in the MIAC? Oh, I'm trying to think who. I don't think there's going to be any job openings in the MIAC this offseason. Just trying to think off the top of my head. I don't I don't see anyone moving on from their coach. Um, what, about the, what about SWAC? I think Bethune-Cookman can work. Um, it's going to take a – I just I still don't think Bethune-Cookman is going to fire 
Sims this year just because of all the external stuff that happened. I do think they're going to give him but, one more year. But, Blue, the team year. gets worse every year. Every okay. year the team gets worse. I agree. I'm just telling you what, like, I think will happen. Like, I, I just think that's what they're going to use as their justification to keep him one more year. And I don't see anyone in the else in the SWAC losing because with how Texas Southern blew out Grambling, I don't see them. I don't see Alabama A&M beating Texas Southern. You're not going to fire McKinley. So mm -hmm. I mean, listen, you know what you just you just told one of your callers about the coach of the year. That McKinley man could be the coach of the year. That man could possibly be the coach of the year. That guy at Texas Southern, he could possibly be the coach of the year. Now let me just say this about that too. Uh, I watched that Texas Southern Grambling game. Okay, now when Hugh Jackson took that Kelfair's kid out the game, it deflated his team. But here's the bigger problem: the second half, Gremlins team quit. Now you you know, coaches know what that means right there. Now I had a old principal told me years ago. He said when the when the players quit, it's two things: either you got to get rid of them players, or you got to get rid of the coaches. But them players at Gremlins that second half against Texas Southern, they quit. Um, did you see the game? Yeah, it was bad. They, they quit. They quit. Now they 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 were deflated by him taking out. See, I don't understand this whole thing. See, I'm I'm gonna say this, and I don't I'm not being disrespectful. Hugh Jackson is in his own way. I'm sorry, he's in his own. If he could step back, he is in his own way. Okay. Uh, I'm I'm just telling you from what I saw. Now I saw that second half. I'm telling you. Gremlin players quit. Okay, listen, Blue. I ain't gonna hold up the line. I, you know, you know how I, I'm long-winded. But listen, Blue. Thank you for letting me talk. And y'all have a good night. Okay. Did you, hey, you, Blue. Mr. Did you have a question for me? Oh, um, I I did, and now I did, I blanked on it. Oh, talking about Gremlin, I I do think, depending on how it works, listen, it's year one. We'll see how it goes moving forward. But I do, I talked to another coach in the SWAC. Uh -huh. And he was saying that there's too there's too many people who think that they could catch fire like Jackson State did by hiring another quote unquote prom, but they don't understand that there's not another prom and that just going to hire a former NFL head coach or a former NFL player is not just like a band-aid over a larger issue. And he said that that's what he's worried that a lot of other swag and HBC pros are going to do is just everyone's going to be hunting for the next Dion when there's not another Dion out there that you can hire that can bring that type of energy brand and everything into your program. And so he, he said that um, that's what he's fearful that a lot of other swag programs are going to fall into that same trap. Well, now, now Blue, let me tell you this. The, the only the, the, the problem with me out that Graham has been one issue, the mishandling of that quarterback situation. I said from day one that Hawkins' kid was not the answer. Now, I personally wanted that kid from Syracuse that uh, was Chance, was it Chance Army? Yeah, Chance that, Amy. What's his name? Okay, I liked him. I like this kid, Calvez. But I listen, the way they snatched him out of that Texas Southern game, I thought – was terrible. I really thought more of Hugh that he wouldn't do nothing like that. Because like I said, it deflated the team, but the second half, they quit. 
Now, I see Mr. Campbell on the chat. Mr. Campbell, let me tell you what they're saying up in Atlanta. They're saying the FAMU is trying to get up the money to have a home game. Okay? Now, the word up here is that y'all going to either have to play Sanford or you're going to have to play Mercer. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Both of them teams will try to put fifth or sixth on you. Now, we know the young man that's the head coach at uh, um, Mercer. Uh, Blue, his daddy was a high school legend, too. Uh, their last name is Chronic, but I'm trying to think what was his daddy's last name. I can't. That, that, the school was called East Coweta. That, that was the, the daddy's school. But uh, y'all look for that because my thing is, if they don't come to Tallahassee, fam, you's going to either go to Macon or they're going to go to Birmingham. Listen, thank you so much, Blue, for letting me talk, okay? Appreciate you, Mr. Ford. All right. Have a go. So bracketology is at the end of the show, but I will say um, I don't think FAMU would be matched up with Sanford because as long as Sanford wins this weekend, I, I don't see them not being a seed, which means they're going to get a first-round bye, which means they're not going to get matched up. And I, I, I guess I'll just spoil it for y'all. If Mercer loses this weekend – there's a very good shot that Mercer doesn't make the playoffs. Now, I'll kind of break down why at the end of the show, but there's a very, very high likelihood that if Southeastern Louisiana beats Nichols on Thursday, that the first-round matchup, if FAMU somehow makes it, is going to be Southeastern Louisiana versus Florida A&M, and it's either going to be in Hammond again or FAMU's going to bid enough to get it to um, – get it to brag but that would be if FAMU got in that's probably going to be the matchup because I do think Sanford's going to get a bye and if they don't then that, that's a potential one but I just don't I, right now I don't see we'll, we'll talk about that was the next that was one of the next matchups anyway but that that's, that's going to be really tough I would I would be very shocked to say if Sanford wins this weekend they don't get a bye that would be uh, I don't understand how you could argue that because I mean I saw a breakdown of their resumes, and there's. I, I think they should be a top four seed if they went out. I, I do. I do think Sanford has a better resume right now than North Dakota State does. Now, do I think North Dakota State's a better team? Yeah, probably. But I do think if you're looking at straight resumes, not hypothetical matchups, Sanford's resume is better. Then I, I think you could even make an you, you could make a strong argument that they're probably got the fourth best resume in the country. Um, but anyway, we'll talk about that at the end of the show. Um, Sacramento State, UC Davis. Now, UC Davis. If you're a FAMU fan, you need to. I I don't know if I'd have to mail mail Mr. Campbell and all my um, FAMU fans in the chat a a, a Sacramento State shirt, but. You better be the biggest Sac State fans of the of the entire um, in the entire country. If you're a FAMU fan in the chat and you want to make the playoffs, you better hope Sac State wins this game. Because if UC Davis beats Sac State after just beating Idaho and their only losses are like to the Dakotas in an FCS school or FBS school, they're getting an at-large bid. Just gonna throw that out there. So if Sac State wins, UC Davis is out. If UC Davis wins, they are probably in. Um, at the end of the day, is Sac State probably drop a few seeds, but probably still be at you know I would say probably a top eight seed anyway. But 
it's going to come down to the run game. I say every week on the show, every time I preview a Sac State game, they're sitting at 10-0, and 7-0 in conference, and they're averaging 250-plus yards per game on the ground, almost six yards per carry as a team. Cameron Scadabo, Asher O'Hara are the two-headed monster in this rushing attack that nobody in the country has found a way to stop. Asher O'Hara, 17 rushing touchdowns this year as a quarterback over 700 yards rushing, 1,105 touchdowns for Cameron Scadabo, and also Marcus Fulcher has put six in the end zone this year at the running back spot. Also, you got Pierre Williams to worry about, Marshall Martin at, in terms of the passing game. And I think Marshall Martin is making an argument to be one of the top tight ends in the country, man. The kid is unbelievable and an absolute matchup nightmare. And I think could get a look at the next level at a wide receiver position. But Armand Bailey, Marte Mapu, Cameron Bouchard, all these guys on the defensive side have done excellent jobs. Twelve and a half tackles for loss, six sacks for Armand Bailey, making a strong case to be an all-conference player. And this is going to be a tough one. For UC Davis, man, listen, I get it. They've played a brutal schedule. So UC Davis's schedule right now, they lost a, a power five team in Cal. They lost by two on the road at South Dakota State. They lost by five to Weber State, and they lost to Montana State. Like, those are the four losses. I mean, no four better losses in the FCS right now, honestly. They beat Idaho last week. A win on the road at Sac State would be just be the – icing on top of their resume and Yolanzo Gilliam is going to be key over 1100 yards 12 rushing touchdowns and also Miles Hastings has to play solid football but the problem for me is UC Davis is allowing over four yards per carry 154 yards per game on the ground everybody in the chat can tell you if you do not stop Sac State's running game you have no shot I think the dream ends here for UC Davis I expect Sac State to pick up a big win over the Aggies this weekend. Now, Sanford, Mercer, two teams we were just talking about. Sanford, 9-1, 7-0 in conference, putting, putting an absolute amazing season together under Chris Hatcher, who I talked about earlier. And it all starts with the bad man at quarterback out of Juco, Michael Ayers. Th only three picks this year, 31 passing touchdowns, leads the country in completion percentage. And the wide receiving core of Kendall Watson and Chandler Smith. I talked about the, the wide receiving core in Incarnate Word earlier. Both these guys over 700 yards receiving. Both 19 combined touchdowns between the two of them. You're going to have to try to stop one of them. And on top of that, Jalen Thomas and Jay Stanton both have rushed for over 500 yards. They can, they're can they so balanced on the offensive side of the football. And on defense, they've had a lot of guys step up out of nowhere. Noah Martin, Nathan East. Isaiah Richardson as well. Sanford's defense has been the key. Sanford's offense has been good for years now. They just have not had a defense that could stop anybody. And this year, they're actually getting the defense off the field, and the offense is just eating against people, and they have looked impressive week after week. On Mercer's side, you have a team that I think potentially could need a win here to – get to the playoffs. When you look at Mercer's resume, they, they, their losses are to Auburn, Chattanooga, and Furman. Three great losses, I understand, but they have not beaten any super impressive teams. You know, Gardner-Webb winning the Big South would really be a help to their resume, but wins over Moorhead State, the Citadel, Wofford, Western Carolina, ETSU, VMI, 
are not going to set the world on fire. Now, they have looked dominant in almost all of those games. But they're, I, I still think a two, a, what, losing three out of your last four, no real signature wins is really going to hurt them come playoff committee time. Now, Fred Payton's got to play big, 30 passing touchdowns this year, over 2,500 yards. And at the running back spot, they lose their best running back in Austin Douglas. Wooten's done his best to kind of carry the load. Devron Harper and Todd James, 21 combined passing touchdowns or receiving touchdowns. Todd James ejected last week due to a targeting on special teams. Um, it's going to be extremely important for those guys to get off last week. Furman really took Todd James out of the game, especially, you know, then he got ejected for targeting. But Devron Harper is going to have to be the leader of that wide receiving core. Isaac Dowling, Miles Redding, Lance Wise are some names to watch on the defensive side of the football, but it's going to come down to the passing defense of Mercer. Mercer has four 17 interceptions and only allowed eight passing touchdowns this year. Their secondary has played amazing this season. It's going to have to do it again, but traveling to Birmingham against Sanford, I don't, I don't love the road matchup here. Give me Sanford, getting to 10 and 1, eliminating Mercer potentially from playoff contention. I like Sanford here at home over the Bears of Mercer. Now, William and Mary Richmond, I know A put earlier in the chat that this was his game of the week. Also, breaking news from Paris JSU finally gets a power five win over Texas Tech. Um, that is huge, by the way. But William and Mary Richmond, this is for the CAA title. And William & Mary is going to have to get a win here. And it's probably one of their toughest matchups of the season thus far. It's going to come down to the passing offense of Richmond versus the rushing attack of William & Mary. William & Mary, Bronson, Yoder, Malachi, Amoa. I've spoke about it over and over again. Both of these guys are putting on absolute crazy years. Also, Donovan Lester has emerged in the past few games as someone to really look out for. All these guys are averaging over six yards per carry. Amoa is averaging eight yards per touch. Both of all three of these guys in Leicester, Amoa and Yoder, all have seven or more touchdowns on the ground, and they just run the football so efficiently, and they're so creative with how they get the ball into their playmakers' hands, averaging 277 yards per game over six yards per carry and almost and approaching 30 rushing touchdowns. Then also that front seven is going to have to get pressure on Reese Udinsky on the other side of the football. John Pius, 17 tackles for loss, 10 and a half sacks. Nate Lynn, 10 quarterback hurries, four sacks, eight tackles for loss. The front seven is going to be key. If you cannot force Reese Udinsky off his spot, it's going to be a long day because he is extremely efficient and effective when he's trying to push the ball down the field. When you look at Udensky, second in the country in completion percentage behind Sanford's quarterback, Michael Ayers, 2,800 yards, 22 touchdowns, only four picks. He does not miss very often. And if you don't shut down this wide receiving court, things could get really difficult for William and Mary this weekend. Jacob Ayers, Leroy Henley, Jashia Williams all have made – all been significant contributors in the passing attack. And then also we saw last week the front seven played a huge role in Richmond, knocking knocking off both Delaware and New Hampshire. Tristan Willer, Philip O'Connell have been two of the best linebackers in the country. Jeremiah Grant off the edge has been almost unblockable at times. I've been riding with William and Mary. No one has shown me they can really slow down this rushing attack. 
Give me William and Mary in a close matchup. I think it's going to be a one-score matchup. Potentially, who can make the play at the last minute? Give me William and Mary by three, by I would say three to seven over Richmond this weekend. Now, HBCU preview before we get into our two games of the week. We have PV versus Valley, which could be a potential trap game if you ask me, because PV has to win to clinch the SWAC West. And Valley is just playing for pride at this point. And we know Valley playing for pride is a scary, it's a scary sight to see, especially at home where they have knocked off PV, what, last year? And I think they beat them the year before, if I'm not mistaken, as well. So this could be a very, very interesting matchup, and it's going to come down to how focused PV is. Do not be caught looking ahead to Jackson State. Do not be, don't count anything before you clinch it this weekend. It's the rushing attack, though, 236 on the ground as a team this year. Ahmad and Tone, Jaden Stewart, Trazon Conley. We know what it is. Can Conley get it done through the air? If Valley shuts down the rushing attack, that's a big question mark. Now, Jaleon Howard can do it at wide receiver, but outside of him, I think they lack really any playmakers to stretch the field. And and PV's defense has been a major key. I think it's been an underrated aspect of this team where Keyshawn Johnson, Jordan Johnson, Warren Schenkel, Jesse Evans, all these guys have done an excellent job. I mean, they have three guys with 11 or more tackles for loss this season. A bunch of guys with sacks. They've done an excellent job getting pressure on the quarterback and limiting what other teams do well. Uh, It's just, man, Valley at Valley. There's nothing I can tell you that makes me super excited about this Valley team other than they're playing at Valley, and the defense can be extremely scrappy. Kenneth Martin has done excellent. Ronnie Thomas is having a swag defensive player of the year season. 16 tackles for loss, eight and a half sacks. Jalen Bell as well. If I'm not mistaken, he won swag defensive player of the week a week or two ago. This Valley defense can be interesting. They have to slow down the rushing attack. I think if they take away the run from PV, this game gets extremely interesting. Because when you look at Valley's defense, they're limiting the run pretty well. And they've given up 300-plus yards per game through the air. And the question becomes, can Trazon Conley take advantage of that? And does PV have enough weapons on the outside to do that? Oh, my God. I don't know. who. Oh, man. I'm going to I'm gonna say PV in a close one. I, I want to take the upset so bad. There's just something about it that it, it's eventually – I just don't see Valley pulling this one off, man. I think Bubba McDowell is not duly – He's not going to overlook this. He's not going to choke in the big one. Give me PV in a close one over Valley on the road, clinching the SWAC West, and we're going to set up that Jackson State PV matchup. I don't know how y'all feel about that matchup, but I'm, I'm going to say I'm going to say PV pulls out a close one. Now, the Florida Classic, we got FAMU Bethune Cookman. We know about the kind of recent history <laughs> of this of this matchup, but I. I I think FAMU runs away with this one. I know it's a rivalry game, and you're supposed to throw out records and and everything like that, but Jeremy Musa is is, – I don't think Bethune has a secondary to slow him down. And I definitely think FAMU is going to be able to run the football against a Bethune-Cookman defense that has been actually shockingly bad against the run. Bethune-Cookman's allowing 200-plus yards per game on the ground, 26 rushing touchdowns. 
I think FAMU is actually going to be able to move the football on the ground this week. Jalen McLeod, Terrell Jennings, I, I just I don't see any way how Bethune Cookman pulls this off. Also, Isaiah Major that and at the linebacker spot in this secondary man, the secondary has been playing really well for FAMU recently. And they've been forcing a lot of turnovers, and that front seven slowly coming along. Gentle Hunt, Isaiah Land, also uh, Dre Jones has been a outstanding addition to that front seven that has really emerged late in the season. He really he's kind of taken the Savion path where he wasn't really a factor early, but as the seasons went on, has really emerged as a key piece on the interior of the defensive line. And you've seen, I told you guys. FAMU's biggest concern for me was could they replace Savion because Savion opened so many things. They opened up so many things for Isaiah Land and Gentle Hunt late last year. And with Dre Jones emerging, you saw Isaiah Land got off. Gentle Hunt was doing his thing. And so I think that's going to be the key this weekend. Give me FAMU by, I would say, 2030 this weekend over Bethune-Cookman. I don't don't think... um, I don't, I don't, I don't trust Jalen Jones. I, I, I don't think Bethune's in a good place, and they've also been dealing with a lot of stuff off the field that I think kind of is going to distract them this weekend, to say the least. Yes, it is a, it's a must for FAMU to win this one dominantly. If FAMU struggles and FAMU wins this game by three, by seven, or they're they're trailing late. Chris, that really, really hurts them in the eyes of the resume, and it's going to reflect in the computer rankings and the Massey ratings and everything like that. They're going to have to come out here and win by 20, 30-plus points to make a statement the week before Selection selection Sunday – this is this is going or the day before selection Sunday. So I'll be I will be trying to do a live stream on Sunday for the bracket and everything. But th- it's a must win and it's a must win convincingly. They, they like that they, they have to they have to dominate. Um, and Texas Southern Alabama A and M. The the <laughs> Texas Southern is still technically alive in the SWAC West. So this is technically a. Must win for them, and I hope that PV slips up. And for Alabama AM, you're just kind of playing for pride. AM is three and seven coming into this game, could fall to three and eight on the year with the loss. And last week, I bet against Andrew Body, I bet against Texas Southern, and I don't, I, I'm not going to do it again. AM is so inconsistent through the air, man. 13 interceptions to only 10 passing touchdowns. They are so inefficient through the air, and even with Lankford's ability to run the football, they they have zero efficiency. They're just inconsistencies all around at the court in the quarterback room, and I think Texas Southern secondary is going to be able to force some turnovers. And last week, man, we saw them shockingly kind of slow down the run and force the ball into the air for Grambling. Get give me. Give me Texas Southern convincingly this weekend. I think the I think the secondary is able to force a bunch of turnovers, and I don't like the morale of where A and M is right now. So give me Texas Southern, Andrew Body over Alabama A and M and Condo Manor three and eight this year, which is something that there's not. I don't think there's many people who saw that coming. To be honest with you, yeah, they're playing for coordinators' jobs. I think McKinley, like I said earlier, has done enough to save his job. But it's definitely those assistant coaches are probably paying playing for a paycheck next season. Um, 
I like uh, let's see. I think FAMU has to hope for teams like Tennessee Martin SL SCLA not to win the auto bids in order to get in. Now that's a good point. I do agree with that. But our one MIAC matchup we're going to talk about tonight: Howard versus Morgan State. And if I if I would have told y'all in August that the best game the last week of the season in the MIAC is going to be Howard at four and six, two and one conference versus four and six Morgan, two and two, potentially playing for second place in the MIAC, a lot of you guys would have told me I was insane. But that is where we are sitting right now, and it's going to come down to the run game. Neither team has a quarterback that I trust to hit a broad side of the barn right now. It's going to come down to Jarrett Hunter, James Eden, Ian Wheeler running the football for Howard. Jarrett Hunter had a three-touchdown performance, exploded as one of the top players last week in the FCS. Def, I've won the MEAC Player of the Week. Um, it's played at AM. Um, it's played in Huntsville. But on Morgan's side, they don't use the they, they don't have a by committee approach. It's Alfonso Graham, number two, and he's and he's gonna run the football down everybody's throat man over a thousand yards rushing the only a thousand yard rusher in the MEAC this year eight rushing touchdowns over six yards per carry he's average he's averaging over a hundred yards per game right now the the key is going to be Morgan State's defense when you look at the games that they've performed well in it was their defense set the tone early and it allowed their offense to kind of establish the rhythm establish the running game if Howard jumps on Morgan early things are going to get a, a lot tougher for Morgan because they're gonna have to play from behind and they don't do that very well when you look at the Stony Brook game they kind of had to come from behind the Delaware State game they jumped immediately on Delaware State were able to establish to run game and they were able to run away with that one South Carolina State the same thing but when you look at the North Carolina Central game the Norfolk State game the Townsend game those early deficits really impacted Morgan and do you trust Damon Wilson to load the box and force Quentin Williams into some mistakes 14 touchdowns with eight picks completing less than 65% of his passes that's going to be the key I'm going to, it's going to come down to coaching. Give me Morgan State, Damon Wilson, end of the year with the win. Love Alfonso Graham. I trust his defensive mind. I trust, I trust Antoine Sewell to force some turnovers from Quentin Williams through the air. Give me Morgan in the upset over Howard, ending the season off with a huge win year one of Damon Wilson. And I cannot wait to see what is next for, for this program. I think Damon Wilson this year is going to have a huge recruiting class and do not be surprised if it's Morgan Central next year competing for the at the top of the MEAC. I'm just going to put it out there and say it like that. But we got our FCS game of the week. No surprise here. Montana, Montana State. We got our HBCU game of the week. Jackson State, Alcorn State, man. So let's get into the brawl of the wild. Game day is going to be there the second FCS campus to host game day this year and it's going to be a scene of embosement and I cannot wait to see that environment it's going to be like 20 degrees out there and it's it's going to be a, a raucous environment and I had some I had some Montana State people um reach out and ask me if I could make it up for this game ask me if I was considering it so I should be at Jackson State Alcorn and I was looking at plane tickets things like that man if I had the budget I would be in Bozeman for this game, but uh, uh, <laughs> we're going to save the money for for a playoff run. But this one is a must win, I think, 
for Montana. It's potentially if they lose, they still, um, they still could make it with a few teams or, or a few things falling their way. But a win here locks them into the playoffs, and Montana State a win here locks them into potentially a top two or three seed in the um in in the in the FCS playoffs. Health wise, there's some players potentially coming back. I've been hearing from Montana State. Isaiah Afonzi, FCS All American, still hasn't played. He's TBD, game time potential decision. Tommy Malott, Sean Chambers, both going to be there this weekend. Elijah Elliott, Lane Subner, they're getting some pieces back around this team. And that's going to be huge for their FCS playoff run. But this one's going to come down to Montana for me. And the reason it's going to come down to Montana for me is because this Montana team goes as Lucas Johnson goes at the quarterback spot. Lucas Johnson, when he plays well, Montana's a tough team to beat. But there's been some times where he's been turnover prone, been a little bit banged up. And I I think if I'm not mistaken, he's back this weekend. But it's just this team is so... This, this team is so different when he's playing well. You look at the past two weeks, five touchdowns, only one pick, 400-plus passing yards and two blowout wins. He gets hurt against Sac State. It really takes him out of the game, and he doesn't play well against Idaho, another big loss. And also you got Robbie Hawk in this defense that is, I think is really missing Patrick O'Connell, uh, has, has missed Patrick O'Connell at times this year. It, I, it's just going to come down to if Lucas Johnson can carry them to the win. And Montana State's defense has been excellent this year at times, especially against a run. And also, can Montana stop the rushing attack? I just want to put this stat out here for you guys. I'm gonna let y'all. I'm gonna let y'all tell me what y'all think. Without an All-American running back, they were missing their top four running backs on their depth chart for the first three or four weeks of the season. Their backup quarterback was the starter for three games. And right now, Montana State is averaging 316 yards rushing on the ground, 6.6 yards per carry, and 36 rushing touchdowns. And that's with a majority backup quarterback leading the team in touchdowns without their FCS All-American and their top four running backs to start the season. It makes zero sense how, how how that's a real stat for Montana State. Tommy Malott, 700-plus rushing yards at the quarterback spot, seven touchdowns. Sean Chambers coming back this weekend as a backup, 622, 16 rushing touchdowns. Elijah Elliott, 550 on the ground. Lane Sumner, over 400 yards. Marquis Johnson had four touchdowns last week on the ground, who's a wide receiver playing running back just, just because they had to have some added depth. It comes down to Lucas Johnson's play and – can Montana slow down Montana State's rushing attack? And I'm going to say they cannot. And the best comparison is when they played Sacramento State, still allowed almost 200 yards on the ground, two rushing touchdowns. And I do think Montana State's rushing attack is more deadly than what they faced against Sac State just because of the variety of weapons that they have on, on this offense from the quarterbacks to the wide receivers to the running backs, all being able to run the football is ridiculous. And they were missing two starting offensive linemen throughout most of the year. The, I just want to, let me throw this stat out at you. Montana state has ran 
for 230 plus yards in every single game except for Oregon State, where they ran for 168 and three touchdowns. That is just pure domination, and I think that's the difference. Give me Montana State knocking off the Grizz at home in Bozeman, which is a whole nother reason I'm picking Montana State. If you've never seen a game in Bozeman, seen the crowd, uh, it's the, it's arguably a top three environment in FCS football. Listen, Jackson's number one because of the 60,000-person stadium, all that. The Montanas are easily a close second, especially Bozeman. Give me Montana State this weekend beating the Grizz. I'll say by 10 this weekend at home in Bozeman. Now, our HBCU game of the week, easiest of Soul Bowl. And I'm going to be at this game, and I'm so excited to see the environment. Now, just to give you all some backstory, this game is supposed to be so packed that they're, they're opening the gates in Lorman. If you if you didn't get the email, Alcorn sent on an email today to the media, I think, that said the gates are going to open at 4 a.m. on Saturday for a 2 p.m. kickoff because they're expecting so much traffic and so many people coming to the game that they're opening the gates at 4 o'clock in the morning. And I, I was told today that and I don't know if it's going to happen, but I was told today there were so many media requests that, you know, so I don't know if y'all know how it works behind the scenes. So the away team requests credentials for their own media to the SID. So any local reporters, photographers for the team, anything like that. And then, of course, Alcorn, um, Alcorn has the uh, their own media requests and credentials. Apparently, Jackson State requested like 100 plus credentials just for them. For sideline passes. Just for them. And that's not even including the people like me. Who are going through Alcorn. It's going to be. Absolutely berserk this weekend. It is going to be. Insane man. So listen if you're traveling to Lorman. Be safe going out there man. And and try to get there early. Because if they're opening the gates at 4am. I can only imagine. How crazy it's going to be. Around. 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock in the morning. I said, I'm staying up in Natchez. I'm getting up at like 3 a.m. And listen, I'm going to be the first one at my gate. And if I have to put a bed in the back of my car, y'all can catch me in the media parking lot taking a nap on Saturday morning before the game. I'm just <laughs> I'm just telling y'all that. I am not sitting in traffic all day. I'm getting there early, early on Saturday morning. But in terms of the game, we know what – the, the strategy is for Alcorn State, and that is to run the football, especially with the absence of their quarterback. So in case y'all didn't know, Aaron Allen is out for the season uh, for Alcorn State. He, he won't be back this year, and that means Trey Lawrence is going to be the guy for the Braves offense. Trey Lawrence has played in three games this year, and it's – Thus far in the games, listen, I, the stats, I don't I think he looks a little bit better than what the stats are saying, but he's only he's only thrown for about 200 yards, one touchdown on the year because he has only played in three games. But it's going to come down to the rushing attack. Jarvion Howard and Nico Duffy have to be electric at the running back spot. Now, Jarvion Howard leads the SWAC in rushing, has put together an all-conference season easily. He should be first team all-conference 
without without even debate, 1,100 rushing yards, five yards per carry, 11 rushing touchdowns this year. Nico Duffy's kind of been the change of pace back, over 300 yards, one rushing touchdown this season. They've really used Howard a lot more than they have Duffy at times, but they're going up against a defense. Now, I'm going to say a defense that has been elite at stopping the run. And... Jackson State right now is a, is only allowing 98 yards per game on the ground, less than three yards per carry, and have only allowed five rushing touchdowns all season. And the worry that I have about this matchup, because the, because college football, like I said earlier, is all about matchups. If Jackson State puts eight nine in the box, are we going? Are is anyone going to trust Trey Lawrence to push the football down the field? and require Jackson State to move bodies outside the box. And that's the one question I have. And then also, Alcorn special teams have been consistently bad. Listen, their punter, academically ineligible, has not been able to play all season. So they're using a backup punter still. He hasn't progressed like everyone, I guess, thought he would. If you lose the field position battle and you give Jackson State good field position on punts, it's going to be a long game because the offense is so efficient moving in between the 20s that if you, if you give them the ball at the 43, they're in the red zone in one or two plays. And it's going to be a long day if you get Jackson State consistently good field position. And if your punter is not getting a lot of hang time, you're going to give Zay Bolding and that punt return group all the time in the world to go make plays. Kevin Coleman, Zay, whoever they want to put back there because they have playmakers who can be elite punt returners. And then on top of that, the key for Alcorn State's defense, who has played, I would say they've played pretty well this year, especially against the run. And they've been sneaky good against the pass. When you look at Alcorn State, they're allowing less than four yards per carry, and they're allowing less than 200 yards through the air this season and only have allowed 13 touchdowns to seven picks through the air. Their defense has played extremely well, but this is going to be one of the deepest wide receiving units that they've seen. And it's going to come down to the two linebackers. Clauden, Clauden and Terrence Ellis are going to have to play in Jackson State's backfield. You're going to have to take something away from Jackson State. We've seen it time and time. If you try to take away Shador and you empty the box, you're able to run with Savion. If you load the box, Shador is going to pick you apart over the top. You cannot allow them to have whatever they want consistently through the game. Ellis has to get pressure. He's got 70 total tackles, seven and a half for loss, two and a half sacks. He's played really well this year. Carry on Kinsler, already five pass breakups this year. A pick has played really well at the safety spot. Alcorn State has a top three defense in terms of sacks and tack tackles for loss in the conference. There was a while there they were one of the top in the FCS. Malachi Bailey, Cavante Key are two guys to look out for. They're also uh, Malachi Webb. And um, Tyler and Tyler Smith is another name to look out for in, on that defense. You have to get pressure on Shador. If you do not force Shador into mistakes and you allow him to sit in the pocket and pick you apart, it's over. Like, you have no shot at winning the game. So you have to take something away. And Savion Wilkerson for Jackson State is, I think, eight yards away from 1,000 yards. I do think they give the ball to Savion consistently this game. With Shador, you know, he's he's playing. Everyone's kind of speculated on what the injury is. But I, I said on my my last live on what was it, Sunday, that listen, if 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 Prom says he's good to go, then I think he's good to go. 
but I still think you've seen over the past few weeks that Savion's become a very trusted part of this offense. When you look at Savion, to start the year, guys, in his first, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six games, he had 20-plus carries one time. Savion Wilkerson, since the Campbell game, has had 21 or more carries for four straight games. He is... Go he he is going to get twenty carries a game now, and I think we we've heard Prom talk about he's been looking for a running back that he can trust to run the football and take care of the football, and that he could trust in big moments. And Savion has become that guy, and you see that in this offense, they're not afraid to give him twenty plus carries. I would really expect Savion Wilkerson due to you know like there's a lot of people in the chat saying that Shador should shit out the game, not my call. But I do think they're going to give Savion 25-plus carries this weekend. I really do. I think they're going to run Savion a lot this weekend. And then you look at the wide receiving core. We know – I do want to say I've talked a lot about Dallas Daniels and Willie Gaines this year. Shane Hooks has really come along late in the year. Um, Earlier this – you know, we had he had a big game against FAMU with two touchdowns. I think he had double-digit – um. I think he had double-digit catches against Tennessee State, if I'm not mistaken. But the last two games, he's had 13 catches for 100-plus yards and three touchdowns the past two weeks of the year. Shane Hooks has slowly caught his rhythm in this offense, which gives him a solid three-headed monster. And also, don't forget about DJ Stevens at the tight end spot, who has been extremely efficient. And he's making the most out of his touches in this offense. Now, The defense is what it is, man. They're allowing 213 yards per game. They're allowing 9.8 points per game. And it's it's becoming a thing where if Alcorn cannot keep Jackson State under 20, it's over. Like, in my opinion, and it's been this way all year, if if Jackson State hits 20, it's a wrap. I mean, I think there's only the only the only team that's hit 20 is Grambling, and it that game was over in like the second quarter. I, I mean, I, it, it was over when they put up those points. It might not have been sick, but it was over. And so if you let Jack State hit 20, man, it's a wrap. And and that's going to be the challenge for Alcorn. But listen, I like Jackson State in this one. Um, and that, that's where I'm going to leave. I'm not going to give a score prediction on this one, but I, I think Jackson State has the significant advantage in matchup. So um, give me Jackson State over Alcorn State. And then finally, man, y'all can call in too. Um, Pull up the caller number while we go. Bracketology 701-779-9585. If you want to talk about any of the games I've covered or uh, just whatever FCS, HBCU topics you want to talk about. Um, he said uh, the state troopers will be on the stretch trying to meet quota, record your speed, and fight it in court. I just filed a complaint on a trooper for lying about someone else speeding. That's a good call. I'm just going to put on my cruise control. But Bracketology 4.0. Project the seeds didn't change much. I moved Sanford up, but Sac State, South Dakota State, Montana State, North Dakota State, Sanford, Incarnate Word, Holy Cross, and Weber. I dropped Holy Cross because I do think the committee is going to hold the struggle against Bryant last week against them. So I do want to say this is bracketology on me predicting what I think the committee is going to do, not what I think should happen. So this is what I think the committee is going to do. I think Abilene Christian due to the stupid way that the WAC A-Sun 
they, they, they have some stupid formula that they won't release what's behind it. I think Abilene Christian is going to get the ace on whack bid. I think the big sky is going to get five teams in, in Sac State, Montana State, Weaver State, Idaho, Montana. And I only the only reason I say Montana is I think they play close enough. And with Mercer's loss, they're going to say Montana gets in over Mercer and they're going to hold a grudge against Fordham. I, I've talked to some people in the FCS. I don't think Montana should be in, but I do think they're going to look at the brand and they're going to give Montana the benefit of the doubt, even though they probably shouldn't. The Big South, I got A&T winning this weekend. I think that they get the auto bid. William and Mary, Delaware, Elon, Richmond, and New Hampshire are going to be the seat. Are going to be the teams in the CAA that get the bid. South Dakota State, North Dakota State, North Dakota get the three bids for the MVFC. St. Francis, SEMO, Holy Cross get the bids for the NEC, OVC, and Patriot. I got Davidson coming out the Pioneer. SoCon, three teams in, Sanford, Chattanooga, Furman, Southland, Incarnate Word, and I, I think Southeastern Louisiana beats Nichols this weekend to get the auto bid. And the last five out, in my opinion, for the committee is going to be Fordham. They're going to hold the Patriot League and that schedule against them. Mercer lose three out of the last four. No really significant wins. I think they're going to hold them out. FAMU will be the third team out. UC Davis, Austin P are the two out. UC Davis, if they don't beat Sac State, is not getting into the playoffs. And I think Austin P, as much as they that team could probably compete, I don't think their schedule has any significant wins that are going to get them in the playoffs. But this is how I kind of see it going out right now. Now, for me, I think Montana should be out. And if New Hampshire doesn't win this weekend, there's a big question mark surrounding just their overall resume in general. And I think New Hampshire should potentially be out as well. And with North Dakota, I think you've got to put them in there just through their strength of schedule. They do have some quality wins and all their losses came to top teams in the FCS or FBS. Um, and then for, I just, the bubble's so packed this year. I don't think you guys understand because I think Fordham, Mercer, and FAMU those top three teams that are out, all those teams are playoff teams. And I and this is why there's, for me, a, a little bit of an issue with the auto bid for some of the smaller conferences. I get you have to have them, but you can't convince me. You, you, you In my opinion, you can't convince me that Davidson deserves a seat, deserves a spot in the playoffs over Fordham, Mercer, or FAMU. Or and St. Francis has had a solid year, or, or like even Abilene Christian, man. Like I don't know if Abilene Christian would get in if if you didn't have the auto bid, and that's that's my issue with some of the conferences. Auto getting some auto bids is that there's some teams that make the playoffs that otherwise wouldn't be in it. They're not going to win a first round game, like Abilene Christian first round. Uh, who do you who do you, you can put them up against? Whoever I mean, they're probably going to have to go up against one of the West Coast schools just due to the fact that they're in. West Texas, they're going to get absolutely smacked by what Weber State or Idaho. I, at the end of the day, I mean, and then you got Davidson. You do, do any of y'all think Davidson's going to Furman or Richmond and winning that game or Elon? I, I, I don't think so. So for me, some of the auto bids are a bit questionable. Like the, I, I hate to say it, but a, a non scholarship conference taking a spot away from a deserving team. In another conference, rubs me the wrong way sometimes. But I'll let y'all kind of <laughs> give me y'all's take on that. Um, 
But listen, call in number 701-779-9585, or you can put your questions in the chat, man. I'll, I'll take questions um, probably another 30 minutes, man, at most. Uh, y'all let me know what y'all want to talk about. Let's see, fam, you should have blown out Bama State so they could have a good-looking game. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what grudges. Uh, JMU last year in the same conference, nine and two gets a three seed. Man, William, I, th- I think it's just because there's so many. Um, th- there's just so many teams that are in that. Because you say that, but let's let's just project through this week, William. Um, Sac State is probably going to finish undefeated, so you can't argue that William Mary deserves a seat over them. South Dakota State is going to finish undefeated in FCS play. Their only loss is to Iowa week one. Montana State is going to finish with, what, one loss as well. Then you're going to have North Dakota State finish with their only losses to Arizona, and then they got that close loss to South Dakota State. Sanford's undefeated in FCS play. Incarnate Word has one loss with an FBS win. So I guess you can argue with William & Mary and Incarnate Word but wait, let me pull up. I got you with the Massey ratings, man. Let me let me grab these for you so I can give you all the incarnate word right now has the 54th ranked strength of schedule. William and Mary's 57th, but right now the computer favors William and uh, favors incarnate word by four spots. So the committee uses the Massey ratings, which is just to let y'all know. And also 7166, I'll get to you in a second after this comments. The, the committee uses the Massey ratings because the Massey ratings take all the computer rankings from across the FCS compiles them and uses all the computer data that um, is put together for the FCS together. So it's kind of like a composite computer ranking similar to the BCS. So Incarnate Word beats you there. Holy Cross, you can make an argument too, but Holy Cross favored in the Massey ratings as well is going to be undefeated in FCS play. Then you got Weber State, who is third with the top 10 strength of schedule. FBS win. Their only losses are to Sac State and Montana State. And the Montana State game, they probably should have won, to be honest with you, if their long snapper doesn't give up eight points on dumb snaps. So I do think William Mary is going to be considered a seed. And I, I've flipped. If you go back two weeks ago, I had William & Mary over Weber State. But due to the fact that I the, the committee uses the Massey ratings, strength of schedule, all that, they're going to pick Weber State over William & Mary, just in my opinion. Now, I do think that if I was picking it, William and Mary would get the seed, but like I said, these are this is a projection of the playoff committee, not my personal thoughts on who should get in and where people should be seated. Seven one six six, you're live. Yeah, what's going on, Luke? Here, loud and clear, man. I um, I got um, a statement and um, two questions. Well, I got two statements. First of all, I want to say, man, you know. I know it would be taxing on you when the shows go like an hour and a half, two hours, but as a truck driver, I just don't – I want you to know. Definitely appreciate you. You know what I mean? These shows, man, be giving me something to listen to while I'm just going down the road. But um, as far as the statement, we had talked about it um, maybe a few weeks ago. Ever since that damn punter from damn South Carolina State was talking at North, you know what I mean, talking about, you know what I mean, that's we come for you, they ain't won a game. So, you know what I mean? Like, listen. You know, yeah, the school's got to slow their roll. You can't be looking ahead. You know what I mean? You always got to worry about the game that's in front of you, and then you worry about everything else when you cross that bridge when you get there. I just want to put that out there. Two questions I got for you, though. Um, I know you seen your boy Christian Watson go off on this past Sunday, right? Man, I, I okay. 
I'm a little upset about it because I've been riding on y'all can say on the show I've rode on that Christian Watson bandwagon for over a year. I love it. I'm pumped that he's <laughs> finally getting a shot. But I had him on I'm in six fantasy leagues. I had him in five of my six leagues. Didn't start him in any of them. I was I oh, wow. I was sick. I was sick. To, oh, yeah, I, I, oh my god. But um, my uh, question is because you know Cooper Cup, you know he won a triple crown last year, and um, I think you know what I mean Watson, you know he just him being a rookie and like Devontae Adams not being there, he has to you know kind of you know step it up quickly. You know I think he's going to kind of finish the year out well. But what I wanted to ask was when you know you know those players are FCS players, do you think that helps the FCS as a whole when those players shine, or do you think that just maybe helps that particular school that they came from? Which one do you think like it matters more for? I think it helps the entire FCS because let's think of it with player comparisons. People always fall in this weird mindset. Like when you when you see a great player at Jackson State, your first thought is to compare him to former great players in the SWAC because you compare players to what you know, what you've seen. And so the next player in the FCS that's a small, undersized wide receiver putting up Cooper Cup-like stats, they're going to say he's the next Cooper Cup. And it's just great for that association. And also, being scouts, GMs, we've seen if you draft players from certain conferences, certain schools that turn out to be good, they consistently are more likely to take chances on players in that conference or from that school. Like what, the Ravens, how many years in a row did a Ravens draft an Alabama player in the first three rounds? I think it was like five yeah, or six. So I think, yeah, I think it helps everybody. Now it could help that certain school a little bit more, but at the end of the day, the goal is to get more kids from the FCS drafted. And I think you're going to see a run at, a, at the record for most FCS players drafted this upcoming year. I mean, you've already seen how, I mean, there's so many players that have already been invited or accepted senior bowl invites or East West shrine bowl invites or hula bowl. I think there's going to be a lot of players who are going to get some real consideration and the narrative that the FCS isn't as talented or doesn't have the same athletes as any other level of football. I don't know how you argue that anymore. Cause I mean, how many examples could you give right now of players from the FCS level that are absolutely killing it at the next level? Right. Yeah, not for real. You know what I mean? That's what I, that's what I was kind of thinking, though. I was just thinking, like, you know, like the momentum is just starting to pick up. So I'm just like, you know, um, some of those French players that maybe wouldn't have got a shot before where, you know, um, power five bias, you know what I mean? You kind of get that bench warmer drafted instead of that French player from the FCS. I think now, you know what I mean, those French players are probably going to get a little bit more love. You know what I mean? Well, I think that's the hope anyway, you know? It should be. I, I just don't understand how people could look at a kid. You know, it, it's the hindsight, I guess, looking back. But how in the world do you rate a guy who couldn't see the field at his respective FBS school and say that he was a better draft pick than some of the best players at the FCS level? It makes zero sense, in my opinion, on how that's even – a question, especially when you look at the success rate of players really after a certain round or a certain pick, man, 
there's no excuse not to take a shot on a kid who's a proven talent and has put up the numbers and put up the stats and put up whatever. Because you can say, well, they didn't play at Bama. That's that's great. But at their level, they were a superstar. And there's no way you can argue against that, in my opinion. It's just a lazy argument. And I think it's lazy scouting. And it's like this weird entitled look on football that anyone who says that a player from an FCS level can't be successful at the next level, I just automatically assume their football IQ and their ability to study film is zero because that just is a lazy argument, in my opinion. I fully agree, Blue. And um, last question um, that I have for you, Um, you know – no, recently, you know, um, Aubrey Miller, he got the senior bowl invite. You know, I'm happy for him, man, like, because, you know, we saw from the first documentary, he kind of was in the doghouse, and then he really worked himself up to be, like, one of the leaders on the team. But in my opinion, I feel like, you know, I think they're going to get athletes as long as, you know, Coach Prime stays there at Jackson. But I think Aubrey is going to be severely missed next year when he leaves because there's nothing like a for sure tackler. Where somebody, you know, what I mean, you when they touch somebody, you already know. You can just look forward to the next down as a coaching staff. You know what I mean? Like so reliable, see the feel good helps out. You know what I mean? On you know different fronts. You know, sort of like you know Bobby Wagner with the Seahawks. Like you know, because even when the Legion of Boom was kind of like declining or they, different players going different places, Bobby Wagner still, you know what I mean, was had a high tackle rate and kept you know that defense you know intact. Um, I just wanted to know, um, do you kind of agree with that assessment as far as, like, you know, Aubrey being severely missed next year, or do you uh, maybe think of somebody else is going to be severely missed off this team? He's going to be missed. Uh, at, at the end of the day, I mean, you you could say that Jackson State will ultimately replace him, whether it's by committee or whatever. I, you're going to miss him because I think the thing that James Houston, yes, you could say that, you know, you were supposed to miss him, but it was more the production. I think what they're going to miss most of the Aubrey, and I'm sure Jackson State fans in the comments will agree, you're going to miss Aubrey's leadership and experience in that spot. And I think it's, it's, it's the intangibles that you can't necessarily coach in a player that you're going to miss most of the Aubrey. You can replace the production. Any player's replaceable in production but sometimes replacing the intangibles are the toughest thing for a player. And when you look at Aubrey, he he has amazing intangibles, his leadership, his personality, his instincts, like those things are hard to coach and hard to find in players, but you never know who Jackson portal, who they got sitting up. That might be the next breakout player. But I think they'll miss more of Aubrey's uncoachable intangibles rather than his overall production. If that makes sense. Nah, that, I, I definitely agree with you. I'm saying that's kind of what I'm thinking. Like, you know what I mean? Because, like, yeah, like, yeah, he'll for sure take it, like I was saying. But, you know, leadership on that defense, I mean, especially at that linebacker position, because you're in the middle of the secondary and you're, and you're behind the defense line. Like, it's so important, you know what I mean, to have somebody that communicate, know what they're looking at, you know what I mean, communicate that to the rest of, you know, the younger players on the team or so on and so forth. So I think that's what's going to be missed, you know what I mean? Like, I don't doubt it's going to be – they're going to bring people in, but – I just think, you know what I mean, it's things that, you know, doesn't show up on the stat sheet that's really going to, you know what I mean, they're, they're going to, like, you know, have some work to do in the offseason. But, uh, Lou, as always, man, appreciate you answering my questions. Hey, appreciate the call, man. All right. Zero four two five, you're live. 
yeah. Um, I just had a comment for one of your last uh, callers that asked about, you know, why some of these kids out of high school are not drafted or not um, pursued by FBS schools. Um, my my take on that is that there a lot of kids coming out of high school aren't mature. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're good. Hello. No, you're here. Okay. You're good. Just, no, they just haven't matured yet. And so they may have some athletic ability, but there's um, the FCS seems to find those kids and they mature within um, their, you know, with whatever school they're going to. And all of a sudden, yeah, they become really, really good. And that's why you see a lot of them stepping into the NFL and going beyond is because now they've matured and everything works right. Everything is, you know what I mean? They can um, expand upon their athletic ability. I definitely agree with that because there are some late bloomers. Like, I mean, look at Cameron Ward and the development mm-hmm. that he had. I mean, no, he had zero offers. Really, I think he had two actually coming out of school, both at the FCS level, because he because of the offense he played in and the coaching that he needed. He comes in, wins the Jerry Rice Award, then what puts up forty seven passing touchdowns before he leaves for Washington State, and now he's probably a top three or four quarterback in the Pac twelve right now. It sometimes it's mm-hmm. it's hard to evaluate guys in bad situations, and we talk about that with Jason Brown on the episode tomorrow. Um, and I bring up Cameron Ward, but there are late bloomers. And I think when you look at Cooper Cup, that's a great example. Also, let's look at the number one prospect in the FCS right now. Um, and Cody Mock from North Dakota State, when they got him into the program, he was like 230, 240 as a tight end. And now he's 6'6", 310, and probably the top FCS prospect, the best offensive lineman prospect in the FCS Sometimes the player development at the FCS level is light years further than what you're going to get at a P5 program. Mm-hmm. Well, I just, I just know that um, I've got a, a nephew that plays for Weber State, and he was actually recruited as a defensive lineman. And when he got up there, they made him a tight end. And now he's, I mean, he's excelled at that. So, you know, I'm just saying, and he, these late bloomers get into the FCS and they, they, they turn out to be remarkable players, but they just haven't matured yet. That's a good point. That, that, that is a really good point. And then also ran in the comments put out here too. I think you're seeing kind of an uptick in recruiting to at the FCS level, just in terms of stars, like the Campbells mm-hmm. and everything, getting a, a shit ton of three stars And that's because a lot of the P5 coaches are looking for Band-Aids rather than real solutions. And they're going to eat out of the portal. And it kind of leaves some of those lower to mid-tier three stars for the FCS to grab because they're not getting the same type of looks and offers they are at the FBS level, which could ultimately be a huge increase in talent at the FCS level over the next few years. On top of some of the FCS programs are doing a hell of a job recruiting on the portal too. So... At the end of the day, the transfer portal kind of benefits the FCS in multiple ways like that, too, where you might not have to always get those late bloomers, early developers. And then, you know, we'll kind of see how the talent level shifts in that in that sort of way. All right. Well, that's all I had. I appreciate you calling in. 
อยู่แบบสิ่ง go look up Joe Hag's story no offers out of high school to Super Bowl winner FCS is full of those uh potential stories man there's there's a bunch of them man and um I'm trying to think too um of some like other ones but man like Cooper Cup is like a ridiculous one the fact that he has zero offers and then also you know I I've always I'll, I'll always like to ask coaches about this and this all season me and Coach Fred are going to have a bunch of people on the coach's corner but something that's always interest interests me is you know understanding where a kid fits in a in a role because I mean all of y'all know like especially people who played high school football a lot of people are playing out of position in high school like you got people playing positions that they would never play at the next level whether it be college or the NFL and it it really t- like good recruiters good coaches and, and Coach JB talked about this on the episode dropping tomorrow understand talent when they see it like the eye test like C said. Um, also the eye test, you should be able to look at a kid playing out of position and understand that he's a, he's, he has elite athleticism and an elite talent and understand where you could, um, where we could put him in a position to succeed and improve our team. Like he talked about Shabari Davis. He played at SEMO last year, was an all conference return specialist, defensive back. He was playing quarterback in like Juco And they had to move him to DB, and now he's playing in the NFL. Had like I think with the Jaguars, it they're like there's so many players in high school that are out of position, especially in the lower levels, like not lower level, but like lower star kids. You know the five stars, the defensive ends, it's, they're playing the right position because they're already six six two fifty at at eighteen, which is insane. But there's a lot of kids playing DB that are never going to play DB at the next level. Linebacker. Um, cornerback, but like those lower three stars, man, you can have a kid playing tight end that would never even touch the field. Like it's just, or quarterback is the obvious one. How many kids or former or, or future NFL stars do y'all know that y'all can name off the top of y'all's head right now that was playing quarterback in high school that ended up being Hall of Famers or something elsewhere? And it's just because high school coaches. Some of them, I'll say that some of them are kind of lazy, and they're just like, okay, who's the best athlete on my team? We're gonna put him at quarterback, and he's just gonna be too good to, um, he's just gonna be too good for people to stop. Like Hans Ward, playing quarterback, Hall of Fame wide receiver Julian Edelman. Um, who's who's the other uh, who's the other one? Wes Welker was playing quarterback. Um, there's just so many like Nick Marshall. When, when you look at him, like I mean, he's he went to the NFL as a DB and was a quarterback at Auburn. It was um, uh, let's see, I think it was doubt. Like, there's a bunch that w- have went from DB to wide receiver, but that's kind of a position transfer sonic boom that that's really common. Uh, yeah, Josh Cribs is another great one where I mean, he was playing quarterback and had zero business. Coach Sanders, there you go. <laughs> Like I mean, there are so many great wide receiver cornerbacks that were just thrown at quarterback in high school. That at the end of like their high school coach, but like no thought about where. There you go, Randall L. Two, and and that's that was the conversation I had off camera with some coaches about how how lazy high school position. Like you can recruit a kid at so many different positions. Like every kid in the portal that's not a offensive lineman really, or potentially 
or or potentially I don't know like really an offensive lineman like you just put athlete next to them because I don't know where they're going to end up to, to, in terms of development or anything like that because look at Trevor Penning Trevor Penning was the same thing at Northern Iowa he came in as if I'm not mistaken a tight end at like under 250 and matured into like a six eight three twenty first round pick. Let's just said Bert Emanuel and looked like his son would be the same. Probably. How much does a high school player who ran simple game plans versus complex game plans help getting offers from college teams? Um, That is a thing. Okay, so quarterback would be the biggest one, cause because you would want a quarterback who could be able to grasp the playbook and with a more complex playbook, they would be able to throw more. They would be able to understand where to put the ball on more route concepts and also wide receiver potentially because you hear um, – you hear the critique of some wide receivers that they can't run the full route tree. And that was something that even some of the college systems, Dave, that there was a, so if, if you guys follow college ball, you know, Gus Malzahn, Hugh freeze, chip Kelly, like that spread RPO type offense. When it first came around, the wide receivers were not going to the league because the NFL coaches were aggravated that those guys weren't being trained on how to run the full route tree. Like they were either vert guys they were they were they were like curl route. It was like either a vert, a curl route, and pos in in a post. That was like it. Like they never ran a slant. They never <laughs> they never ran an out like a dig like nothing. It was like you're either running a post, a vert, and then we had our underneath guy who would just run like simple drag routes. And so I, I do think um, it helps if you run a more complex route tree or, or complex offense because it shows you in more situations and also defensively. It shows as a corner that you can do different things. You can run different coverages. You can play man-to-man. You can play in a zone scheme. You, you can cover the slot. You can cover the boundary. There's a lot of – you can play safety potentially. So I think the complex game plans do help getting offers, but at the end of the day, coaches are still going to take chances on pure athletic ability regardless of what type of scheme um, you play in. Transfer portal is the community college best friend because a lot of those high school kids that don't land FBS or FCS will have to go to the JUCO. I agree on that one, Roosevelt. The miss, and that's why you see Indy, East Mississippi, um, Hutch, and all these big JUCOs still racking up on talent. I think the star system kind of messed up recruiting. May Scouts Lazy definitely agree on that. As I will not argue, I a thousand percent agree. Hans Ward is another one. Um. What about a kid who is smart but not as athletic versus a kid who has the trouble memorizing things? But as it's as sad as it is, Dave, the kid that is insanely athletic is still going to get the nod just because you feel like you can mold him and get him to learn the playbook. But I mean, it also depends on what school, what level, things like that. But um, it's kind of a give or take. But eh, as a coach, you would rather have the more athletic kid that can fit multiple different roles and you can just try to mold him into that have people there's ways around him having trouble memorizing the play as long as it's not the quarterback at the end of the day you could probably mold an insanely athletic kid that isn't able to you know learn the scheme very well at the end of the day coach sanders got his scholarships to fsu playing qb and got got there and chose defense that's crazy and there's so many people that have i got like i was talking about have played quarterback and just done something different but i'll also you look at people like like you y'all just named Rand, Antoine Randall L, Hans Ward, Prom. I mean, those guys are on elite level. Um, you can't say you can't say Cam Newton like Cam Newton was an actual quarterback, 
and Cam Newton could really throw the football. Listen, I've got to, I'm an Auburn alum. Like I I'm defending Cam to my deathbed. Cam Newton was just a good quarterback and he was a hell of an athlete too. Like if I got the entire 2000, 2010 season on DVD. If you go watch pick any game in that 2010 season other than maybe the Mississippi State game, Man, you're, you're, you're seeing something different. Cam was special. Like, Cam was special in, in college. And and he was special early in the NFL, too. He was he a whole nother level of quarterback. Um, I think made. I'll say made. I don't know if that's a controversial opinion, but quarterbacks um, are, are definitely made. Okay, you're talking about junior college transfer. Okay, I thought you were talking about the conversation about co- athletes playing quarterback. I was like, bro, he's just a good quarterback. But I, I still think they're made. When, because at the end of the day, you you could have a big arm, and you can you could be an insane athlete. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to have some sort of training in terms of like I I, I don't think you're just born. I, that's a position I think you do. It requires a lot of external factors and external work and refinement of your skills to be a great quarterback so i think they're they're made i, I i'm gonna say made um i see a lot of great running backs and quarterback and a lot of great running backs and high school quarterbacks are going to be converted to dbs um at the college level yeah i agreed on that one man uh not to mention cam one yeah he was he was a whole he was a whole i was about to say like that's why i was like ron there's no way like cam fits that but i get what he meant about the juco part uh, Vince Young, amazing at Texas, decent in the pro because of Jeff Fisher. It, yeah, it, <laughs> I still think, you know, with Vince, Vince Young, you know, we're getting way off topic here, um, extremely off topic. Listen, if anyone wants to call in, we're going to wrap up the show in a minute because we've went off the rails, but 701-779-9585. Man, Vince Young was one of my favorite players as a kid. I remember, like, one of the the first game, like, because you know, I was still young. Listen, guys, I was less than 10 when that Rose Bowl, like, I would think I was eight when the Rose Bowl between USC and Texas happened. And I was a big Auburn fan, big college football fan. But I remember that was one of the first games I've, I remember watching that I absolutely fell, like, in love with college. Like, I mean, that was one of the best games I've ever watched in, like, in my life. Still, I watched I watched a replay not too long ago. I mean, that 05 Texas-USC Rose Bowl is still one of the greatest games ever played, man. I just want to throw that out there, too. I, 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 that game, if you want, if you want to convert someone to a college football fan, 05 USC Texas is by far the game you should have them watch. Eight nine four five, you're live. What's going on, dude? This is Doc, man. <laughs> What's good, Doc? Hey, hey, I'm good, man. Hey, I have a question. Um, as far as for the Swag West, even though. Texas Southern has the head-to-head loss against Prairie View. Um, um, do you still think that uh, Texas Southern still has a puncher's chance to even get the swag quest? Or basically, you know, uh, that's only if uh, Prairie View falls against Valley again? Yeah, that's the, that's the only way they can get in. They Like, if PV wins, they're in. They're a game ahead of everybody. Right. The only way Texas Southern gets in is if um, PV loses to Valley. And then Texas Southern, I believe, wins the tiebreaker. So they're still in it. But for me, 
I would rather just see Jackson play PV. Like we've seen them play Southern, it's thirty-five to nothing. We we've seen them play um, Texas Southern on the road and get beat by what thirty. I I would rather just see yeah. a new opponent, uh, and I'd just rather see and PV because I don't think any of the three are beating Jackson State. I would rather see Jackson State play a new opponent rather than seeing a rematch that I already kind of know how it's going to go. Right, and then the, my second question. Uh, for for conferences like the Missouri Valley and the Big Sky, where they have probably like six or se- like six seven teams with at least uh, six you know you know between six and seven wins uh, overall, who do you see as far as in both of those conferences as the odd man out? Uh, and if so, who do you think will be fit as your first four in. <laughs> so I guess in the MVFC, the odd man out in the playoff race would probably be Youngstown or Illinois State. Both those teams have had great seasons, but they don't have any quality wins on their resume, so they're probably going to be on the outside looking in. I think North Dakota, North Dakota State, South Dakota State are locked in, um, but Illinois State and Youngstown would be the first ones on the outside looking in. In terms of the CAA, it's Rhode Island, potentially New Hampshire if things don't go right this weekend. Um, and the Big Sky, UC Davis, and potentially Idaho. Um, I've, I was listening to someone today kind of tell me about it. And if certain teams win this weekend, Idaho could potentially be on the bubble and be on the wrong side of the bubble. If like a UC Davis beats Sac State, um, a UT Martin gets an auto bid or something like that. It could knock Idaho onto the bubble, but those would probably be the teams that would be on the outside looking in and or be right there on that bubble for those conferences that don't have um, the, the conference championship game. Bro, I, I will never hear the day that I was hear that Idaho had actually had a good team. <laughs> like, you know, just me and being, you know, watching college football and, the, of course, them being in uh, FBS for a while. Before they drop, you know, before they drop down to FCS, they were like the doormat of of all the college football, like in that mountain, the western in the mountain region. So I would never hear the day that <laughs> Idaho had a good football team, bro. It's that coach, but man, it's a good show. It's What's that coach, that? man. Uh, Jason Eck is, is in his first year as the head coach at Idaho. He came from South Dakota State. And he has done an outstanding job. And also, no one saw Giovanni McCoy being the quarterback he was. If you ask anyone in the chat, especially Dave, with the North Dakota State picture, they got a quarterback from South Dakota State this offseason named Jabori Gibbs, who has played at South Dakota State. Everyone thought he was going to be the next big name at Idaho. And Giovanni McCoy stepped in as a freshman and has just taken over. So it was just a lot of things that I think people didn't foresee happening rolling Idaho's way, man. And and like people in the chat say, Idaho is a real dark horse in the playoffs where if they get hot, they can pull off some wins, man. And because that big sky is brutal. But yeah, I mean, that's all I had though, man. But yeah, good, good show today, bro. Hey, appreciate you, man. All right. All right. We're going to end the show off with this next caller. Three, two, five, eight. You're live, man. Closing down the show. 
Hey, Blue, I just got a question for you. Then I'm going to hang up and let you comment. Um, did you hear about Gary Quarles of the transfer portal? And what do you think about that? Where do you think his next destination will be? Hey, appreciate the call, man. And, um, yeah, I did hear I did hear about his transfer. It, it happened a while back, too. So I heard that he – if y'all remember, on the round table – probably about two or three weeks ago, me and Scotty said we both got word that he was going to enter the transfer portal. He waited till now because of the new transfer portal window that was installed. He can't officially enter until the end of the season. And so he just kind of now officially announced it. He hasn't been with the team for a few weeks now. Him and Juice Jenkins are both going to transfer. For Quarles, you know, he's a smaller back. You know, I think his production has garnered him some potential lower group of five interest. I would still love to um I would still love to see him at an FCS school just because I, I like him in the FCS and I, I want to keep good talent in the FCS. I don't want everyone to be a Cameron Ward or a Tyler Hudson or a Nicario Harper and and jump to the FBS level, even though I'm really all happy for those guys. I know them all, and and they deserve that opportunity. You know, for me with him, you want to go to a team where you're going to get a lot of production, and it's a team that's going to be able to get you the ball in a a variety of ways. Just off the top of my head, I would have to do some research in terms of roster construction because, you know, it depends on who at other schools leaves and things like that. If he stays in the SWAC, I'll just I'll just say that if he stays in the SWAC, I think an interesting option potentially could be Texas Southern, just because they're losing the the top. If I'm not mistaken, they're losing their top few running backs. Also, Alcorn, all um, Howard is graduating. If I'm not mistaken, Nico Duffy is is also leaving. If I'm not mistaken, so they need a running back. So Alcorn would be an interesting one. You know, you're going to get the carries. You're going to get the production. The offensive line is not bad. Now, if you're leaving the SWAC in FCS, mm, you see, I don't know if he how far he wants to go or anything like that, but I think an interesting destination could potentially – now, okay, let me just throw one out here for y'all. Morgan, Morgan State is losing Alfonso Graham at the end of the season. That would be a hell of a replacement if, if Gary Quarles went up to Morgan State, got with Damon Wilson, and it was the new feature back for um, – for Morgan State. So I would love to see that. So I'll just leave it at that without, you know, going too much into it. I think Morgan State, Alcorn State could be two that you potentially could see. I think he'd be great fits there. They're losing top running backs. He would be the feature running back at both of those schools next season. Now, this is me just speculating. I just want to put that out there. I don't know if any schools have contacted him, what he's thinking. Listen, I have not spoke to Gary Quarles, so don't don't go out there and say that Blue said Gary Quarles is going to Morgan or Alcorn State. This is he asked me where I thought he could fit. Those two schools would be great fits. I have no insider information on that. That is just what I think right now where he could fit. Um, <laughs> I just want to put that out there, man. Um, let's see. So Ed can give or Ed can gives or no joke. And Idaho, Idaho has huge potential. Great city, great campus. Idaho and St. Thomas will be top ten in five years. Man, it might not even be five years for Idaho. Uh, Dave, and they're already top 20 right now. So uh, he said Quarles liked him retweet when I said he should come to JSU. Mm. Anyone who hits the portal, man, JSU is the first school that gets uh, they get to link, man. It, it's great. I love I love how 
everyone was just like, bro, Jackson State's the, <laughs> the place to be. Now, if he goes to Jackson, I don't know if he would go to Jackson, though, Sonic Boo, because if I'm not mistaken, what, uh, Savion's what, a sophomore? I don't think he's going to a school to be running back number two or number three. I think if if he's transferring with one year of eligibility left, he's going somewhere where he is the guy, the featured back. So I don't think I don't I, I don't see Jack State being uh, a choice for him. But I, I think he if I'm if I was his advisor or whatever, I personally think Morgan State Alcorn. If you're going to stay HBCU, if you're leaving HBCU. And staying in the FCS, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, guys. So this is just me trying to do roster, <laughs> trying to think of everyone's roster um, off the top of my head right now. An interesting one would be William and Mary. If Yoder and, and that running back leaves, William and Mary has a ridiculous offensive line. They usually they're not afraid to use some smaller backs. William and Mary would be an interesting one, especially with how much they run the ball. Um, off the top of my head. Okay, so Marcus Cooper is leaving Incarnate Word. I just don't know if he wants to go to Incarnate Word and, and have to split the time between whoever the quarterback is there. But those are just those is me spitballing um some ideas. What a uh, college game day is coming to Montana State. I want to go to that game. And I looked at plane tickets. So the average plane ticket from Mobile, Alabama, or Atlanta, because that's the two airports I fly out of to Bozeman, is on average yearly about four hundred bucks. And I was ready to throw that out there. Bro, the, the plane tickets this weekend, the flight tickets to Bozeman are like $1,100, $1,400 a piece. And I'm just like, Jesus. So, yeah, your boy will not be in Bozeman this weekend. Can't wait to see if any FCS team. So, Dave, I do have some insider stuff. So, Phoenix Sproles, transfer wide receiver from North Dakota State. He is actually visiting James Madison this weekend. So James Madison is looking like they potentially could be the favorite for Phoenix Rolls. He is visiting James Madison this weekend, according to some intel I got earlier today. Um, and I do know some other FCS schools that are recruiting him, but James Madison at the, in the Sun Belt, probably if, man, if he's getting recruited by James Madison, I would imagine that would probably have to be his number one school as of right now. Uh, St. Thomas is insane. That story is wild. That conference is by far going to be the best in the FCS. I thought it was uh, some Texas A&M players that are trying to transfer. I don't know if the – listen, it, the transfer portal officially technically hasn't even opened for people to really be recruiting or committing anywhere. I'm sure – listen, every every player from Texas A&M that transfers Darnell is going to be linked to Jackson State. I did hear there was someone who reached out to me and said there were like two guys who are potentially strongly considering Jackson State. But right now, you know, we're still in midseason. I've kind of taken off my recruiting hat. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if Jackson State landed two, you know, one or two guys from that Texas A&M group that ends up transferring because they are atrocious this year, to say the least. Um, but guys, man, I appreciate y'all tuning in, man. Get the likes up on y'all's way out. Hit that subscribe button. Stay tuned. Um, the uh, the real coach JB Jason Brown from Last Chance, you will be on the show tomorrow. That'll be dropping in the morning. Me and Coach Fred talked with him for over an hour. Also, the roundtable. Coming on Thursday, I'm, I'm going to be jumping on the Golden Boot podcast, um, talking a little bit of HBC football tomorrow night. So follow us on Twitter at the underscore Blue Bloods, if I'm not mistaken, for the link to that. I'll also probably post it on the community page. This weekend, be in Lorman. A lot of great content coming from the Soul Bowl. 
And on Friday, I'll be on the Blitz City podcast with my boy Kobe. We're talking FBS football, man. So if you're into FBS and FCS football, hit me up there on the Blitz City podcast Friday night at 7 p.m. Central Time, if I'm not mistaken. But other than that, man, just staying busy on the website. I will drop our official predictions either tomorrow or Thursday on the website. I'll post a link on the community page as well. But until next time, guys, the Blue Bloods are out.